Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So, you want to hear a story about the power of a mother's love? Well, this woman, Olivia Mabel, owned a ranch with her husband in Salina, Texas. They had a little boy named Aiden, and the little boy drowned on the ranch. Of course, you know there's no greater grief for a mother than to lose a child, and... I guess her mainspring broke. She pushed away everybody, her friends, her church. Eventually, even her husband left her. She went off the grid, literally disappeared. And then... More than two years later, the 911 operator and Selena got some emergency calls from the Mabel Ranch, with nobody answering on the other end, just dead silence on the line. Cops went out to investigate, but nobody answered the door, so they broke it down. Everything inside looked abandoned for years, but the call had clearly come from the house, so they started searching room by room. Didn't find anything but cobwebs until they got to the little boy's room. And that's where they found her. Mama Olivia was dead. It looked like she'd been dead for months, curled up in a rocking chair and clutching a stick figure doll that I guess was supposed to look like a little boy. And they found her in front of, I swear to God, an altar she'd made to the kid, his ashes and photos, flowers, a teddy bear. And she'd written him letters. But the creepiest part. They found one dated that very night, the night of the calls. It said, My Aiden, I'm sorry I should have never let it get like this. I will not let you keep me, you vile, evil creature. Mommy's coming for you, my sweet Aiden. Mommy's coming. Well, Seems to me like Olivia tried to hold on to the spirit of her dead baby and ended up driving herself crazy and dead. Or she managed to bring something pretty evil into the world. Maybe both. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back, lovely listeners. Hi, you're all my favorite, each and every one of you, especially you. You who are having the no good, very bad, horrible week. I'm sorry, and it will get better. Remember not to... Fall in love with any prosperity gospel preachers or to get caught up in any pyramid schemes. It's a very delicate time for you and you just need to stay focused on yourself and think positive. It's an oddly specific horoscope. Cults require members and I sense that it's a big time for cults right now. I thought they were supposed to be vague. What? Horoscopes? Yeah. Only if you're bad at them. Okay. Well, I don't think we could have thought up any better group of listeners than this group of listeners. You mean imagine them? Conjured them? 
Yeah. Believed them into existence. Willed them. Willed them. Willed them into existence. Willed our amazing listeners into existence. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back, even if maybe we just thought of some of you. <laughs> uh, we do want to. In which you- case, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah. well, we do want to remind you that you can reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can check out our website, justastorypod.com, to find out all of our sources for all of the episodes. And find out more information and maybe see some of Sam's artwork. I do artwork. And That's true. that artwork is also featured on some merch from our merch store on the website. That's true. It is true. You can find a link to our merchandise store also on the website. And you can find a link to our Patreon page. And Patreon is where listeners like you can go and become sustaining members of Just a Story Podcast Nation. Is that a thing? Sure. Yeah, sure it is. And there you'll find lots of fun extras like stickers, extra episodes, etc. There's one other way you can reach out to us, and that is the Urban Legend Hotline. And the number for the Urban Legend Hotline is 512-222-3375. You can call and leave us a voicemail telling us a scary story, a joke, a favorite old wives' tale, Grandma saying, or this thing your coworker won't shut up about. Whatever it is. We always get some really crazy fun stories on there. So, Sam. Jacob. Back to the story at hand. Okay. What is it today? Let's talk about this cold case. A cold case, you say? A murdery murder murder. In Texas. Deep in the heart of Texas? Someone clapped. Someone did it. (laughs) Stars at night. Big and bright. So at roughly 9.30 p.m. on February 27th of 1994 in Salina, Texas, the police responded to several silent 911 calls. Do they do that? Um, They might. Yeah, yeah, they might. What they found was all but unseen for this small town in a neglected and dust-ridden house seemingly not touched in years. The body of Olivia Mabel was found inside the bedroom of her late son. The child's room was clean and well taken care of, and the rest of the house was filthy and in disrepair. It's like a reverse Ed Gein. Her body was found sitting upright in a rocking chair, clutching an eerie handcrafted stick doll. A poppet. Maybe so. In the handwritten police report, it says... Doll was made from sticks and leaves and other plant material. Victim appeared to have been deceased for some time. They estimated that she had been dead for months. Okay. The room was mostly bare. The only items were the victim in the rocking chair and a trunk that seemed to have been fashioned into an altar of some kind. Mm -hmm. The trunk was draped in a child's bedsheet. Candles were scattered around the other objects. Sitting on top were a photo of a male child... Jar of living wildflowers, teddy bear, baseball glove, dozens of handwritten letters, and hand-drawn sketches of the same child. Now pasted on the front of the altar were words written in some eastern foreign language. Uh Uh-huh. You spooked yet? Uh, I have a question. Yeah. It's a spooky question. It's my spooky voice. Uh, Is it? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Wildflowers? You said living? Still alive. But she's not. Months. Okay. Electricity? Not sure. Working phone? Must be. (laughs) Okay. 
Just keeping track. Now, they did find a letter dated February 27th. And when did the 911 calls come in? February 27th. Okay, so someone wrote a letter that day. My Aiden, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I should have never let it get like this. I'm leaving. I will not let me keep you. Vile, evil creature. Mommy's coming for you, Aiden. My sweet Aiden. Mommy loves you. Okay, so was the year written on that? Yep. 1994, the it, date of the call. Okay, so it was not the previous February 27th. No, the letter was written. See, I'm paying attention, though. The day of the call, but she'd been dead for months. How do they know she was dead for months? Well, you can definitely tell someone. I mean, like, decomp, for, but, like... I mean, you can look at someone. How do they know she didn't die of, like, necrotizing fasciitis and her well, looks very appearance was misleading or some sort of other wasting disease? Oh, that's it. No, you can pretty much tell like, oh, they've been dead for a while. Okay, well, I'm sorry, but the flowers are alive. That's odd. And somebody's been paying the electricity and phone bill. I'm not sure of the electricity bill, you know, I don't know. Now, on the altar, they also found a pewter urn. Ew, but there are ashes in the urn. Oh, you know there is. So this mysterious discovery of this, this mother's body, her name was Olivia Mabel, was at the heart of Selena's first and only unsolved case. So wow, Olivia, their police yeah. department's really good. Well, it's a tiny little town in Texas. Well, B- bitty town. Bitty, bitty town. So it's unsolved. Where's dad? Okay, well, you want to hear the rest of the story? Yeah. So Olivia Mabel was previously a proud stay-at-home mom. She was married, and they had their son, Aiden, and they lived on, you know, a nice little piece of property out in tiny little northwestern town in Texas. Okay. Now, in 1990, so four years before this happened, their son, Aiden, was found dead in the small seasonal pond on the property. Okay. So, of course, Olivia was heartbroken, naturally. Became extremely depressed. Felt like she was to blame for it. And eventually just kind of, you know, pulled into herself. Understandable. Yeah. And so, husband, dad, left the next year. Got divorced. So he's long gone. He's gone. He is remarried. He's living in New England. He is not in contact with Olivia and hasn't spoken to her in months at the time of the incident. And his whereabouts are accounted for. They know where he is. He's married. He's got a whole new life. So pretty well alibied. He's not coming and going from the house. Very well alibied. Okay. What about other relatives and things in the area? So people hadn't seen her for a little while. But this had kind of become the norm. She had really pulled away from family and friends and everything. Okay. So, of course, they found Olivia Mabel's body in the house, in her house, in the, you know, really unkempt, fond pieces place, except for that one room. Okay. Her son's room. And there is the altar with the ashes and the drawings and the letters and the living wildflowers and his picture. Right. The picture is, of course, of Aiden. You know, this is kind of all over the internet as one of those kind of creepy mysteries, right? There are some real ones. Yeah, real creepy yeah, ones. Some really good ones. <laughs> and so there is a website dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is a phone number you can call and leave a voicemail with any tips or information. Or if your favorite urban legend. Different one. Yep. So on the website, you can get a little more information on things. There's some documents, you know, I kind of read from the written police report. Mm-hmm. There's the death certificate of Aiden, uh, seven years old, accidental death, death by misadventure. The best way to die. I 
thought that was more of a British thing, but whatever. <laughs> well, so it's on the website, it says, Local rumors have become legend regarding what happened to Olivia. The most popular being that Miss Mabel attracted or created something evil. Uh-huh. In a 1999 magazine article, Sergeant Terry Goldsher, lead investigator for the case, had this to say about the curious circumstances surrounding the discovery of Olivia Mabel. Mm-hmm. Nobody had seen her in years. Almost three, I think. She clearly passed her time in some pretty unhealthy ways. The negligent damage to the house, the obsession with her deceased son, and the clearly pagan symbols and altar were all signs of something seriously wrong with her mental health, which is understandable after the death of a child like that. But she just balled up, ran her husband out, never went back to church. See, if she'd reached out, her brothers and sisters in Christ would have supported her, but she left the flock and became the devil's prey. Plain and simple. Things editorializing a bit? Of course. I mean, there were those weird Eastern symbols. I mean, were they? Doesn't sound like this guy's in a place of expertise on that. Exactly. He might have thought they were like creepy satanic symbols. Mm -hmm. Later, they figured out they were Tibetan and Sanskrit, translating to construct and to build. I don't like that. So Francesca Santiago was one of the first officers on the scene, and she described what she witnessed, saying... I spent a lot of time in El Paso and had an uncle that was into some really dark occult stuff. I recognized it immediately. When I walked in that room, I saw the symbols and the photos on the altar, and I felt a strong, angry presence looming over me. It was honestly the last thing I expected to see in this town. Her last name's Santiago. She's from El Paso, and she has an uncle who's into Sanskrit and Tibetan magic. Well, she says dark stuff. Okay. So you can kind of take that at, at what you will. She said she recognized the symbols. No, she said she recognized... Well, yeah, I guess so. I think she meant like there could have been something, you know... Like almost Santeria-y? That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Something along those lines. Lucky she was there. Right? Well, so with the symbols, now the legend has started to build that Olivia may have created an entity of her son, a sentient being based on Tibetan Buddhism created through the power of the practitioner's thoughts. It is known in Tibetan as a tulpa, or in English, as a thought form. She manufactured a ghost. A tulpa. A tulpa, I'm sorry. A thought form, a sentient being. Okay, but wouldn't it just be, like, if she's the one making it, okay, I'm going with it, I'm going with it. If she's the one making it, and she is in the depths of despair, and angry over the loss of her son, and hates the world, and has no warm feeling left in her soul, and it's her thoughts that are being made manifest, isn't it gonna be evil? Like, did she ever think this would turn out well? She may have, but exactly, exactly. Because remember, she's like this evil, vile thing in her letter. Right. So maybe it took a wrong turn. Well, I mean, how could it go well? How are you going to conjure a child of purity and light when you are in the darkest depths of despair? I agree, I agree. Is not a well thought out plan. I would have advised against this. And not just because her Christian brethren would have reached out and saved her. Right. Like, not just because of that, but like, I don't think you're going to make the magic you want. It's going to go little monkey's paw up in here. Definitely. So I'm seeing the local logic. I'm seeing like terrible, awful thing created because she's in a terrible, awful place. And it's, it's made of her thoughts. So of course, this legend passed around the town and the area and the home was unsellable. 
And so the landlord, Christopher Hagen, in 2005, it was almost 10 years later, was trying to debunk all this stuff and hired an Austin-based paranormal investigator. There would be some. Yeah, well, we've met plenty of yeah. them. We went on a ghost hunt with some of them. <laughs> I found the ghost. You did. For another day. So her name was Drew Navarro. And she said, I'm not even sure this was even ever on our physical plane. In hundreds of locations I've studied, I've never felt such an imposing force. I couldn't breathe. My heart was constantly racing. Its energy kept changing, but none of it felt inviting. Whatever is in there, it's extremely possessive and behaves so erratically, like a jealous child throwing a tantrum. As far as I'm concerned, the house and the entire property should be avoided. It needs a serious intervention because I'm not sure what we're dealing with. So, of course, this only added fuel to the fire surrounding the rumors of this tulpa inhabiting the house. Tulpa's in Texas, man. What's next? So, she's saying it was never on our plane. Here's the thing I don't know. What's that? How did it survive after Olivia's death? Uh, Mysterious universe. Mysterious universe. Yes, I do know. Because, you know, they say that these tulpas can kind of take a life of their own. Okay, so it's got its own... They can break away from the person that creates them. So it's now an independent entity, like sentient being thing. Yes. Now, Officer Santiago had one more thing to say. One of the honest parts for me is the date on the last letter we found. Dated the very day we kicked that swollen door down. The city concluded that she post-dated everything, but I don't believe she was alone in that house. And I don't believe her spirit wasn't still in the room with us that night. But then that makes me the crazy one, right? I feel like that is a way that you could end every scary story. Like, seriously, every scary story. (laughs) It's good. It's a good ending. Do you like my story? Do you like your story? I don't know about, like, the letter throws me. Yeah, I agree with Officer Santiago. And the 911 calls? Living flowers? I mean, if I ever were going to try to solve it, I would say, like, well, she has a landlord. Yeah, she does. Mm -hmm. And, like... He had to have access to the home, so maybe he was doing it. Like, maybe he wrote the letter, maybe he made the calls, maybe he brought the flowers. I don't know. I don't know why he would do that. But or some like, some. Creeper. But it seems like another person was there. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I don't know how a ghost writes a letter, but, you know, I don't know much about that. Oh, come on, yes, you do. <laughs> well, they need a medium. Yeah. They don't just... A little automatic writing. So, the property still sits vacant today. 22 years later, the case is still unsolved, and this tiny little town in Texas still has this big mystery. The tiny towns always have the biggest mysteries. (laughs) Okay, so... So what? Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) It's too good to be true, right? Yeah, no, it is. It's too... It's a good story. It's it's too good to be true, but the story. fact that somebody was there that like recognized the symbols and the Tibetan and Sanskrit before the internet. You would have had to hit up the books in the little tiny library. Like they'd even have it. You know, they're super, they're all super religious and they probably burn books at various intervals. Oh, you're from a tiny town. Like they burn books. miles from there. They burn books. Sin burnings, um, I've seen them. I say that, but there is a tiny, tiny town in Louisiana that has a very big Buddhist temple. Yeah, true. <laughs> so this kind of came to light when this pair of podcasters on the no. on the Hey Dare podcast. 
come across this unsolved mystery from online and said they share it on their podcast. Uh Uh-huh. Troublemakers. So it's on episode 52, GMO Olivia Mabel, the Elf Tree Podcast Network. And they came across the website oliviamabel.com when they were using StumbleUpon. I love StumbleUpon. And so they tell, tell the story and there's lots of, oh, dude, this is so messed up. Bro. Bro, bro. And like when describing the doll, like that's kind of Blair Witch. Oh, it is kind of Blair Witch. Yeah. But those are kind of poppity. And so that was on September 30th of 2015. And turns out two episodes prior, episode 50, Nirvana Nirvana, <laughs> they were chatting about tulpas. Fun. And the podcast description says, we hear what they are, how they got to the Western world, and how they were actually affected reality in the case of the Slender Man stabbing in 2014. Slender Man's a tall We'll get there. Okay. And to top it all off, we hear about Ian's imaginary friend Henry and the wolf from Ian's childhood that finally got him. Got him? Mm-hmm. And well, so, how's he there to tell the story? Oh, just, I don't I'm sorry. Seriously. <laughs> so they share the story. With their friend, who's a screenwriter, Martin Eden. And he says, So what I did was take parts of the story we found online, added some elements of mysticism and ancient Tibetan Buddhism, created some urban legends about the thought form she might have created to add a supernatural cinematic element. And then put up a Kickstarter. Oh, shit. <laughs> to help fund a short film that they could use to you know, try to create a feature film. Goal was $10,000. They did not make it at all. Oh, well. I mean, like $2,500. It's a good idea. It is. And you know, the the little like test footage they did, it, it looked good. Yeah. Like it, it really did. I'm surprised. Like it just didn't get viral fast enough or something because this story has become all over the internets. Right. But without the, the screenwriter bit. Right. Well, that is from the Kickstarter video. Which is still online. So it did get write-ups on some of the kind of horror websites. Uh, the lineup, which mm. we both like. Uh, Dread Central, which is a pretty popular horror website that I read sometimes. But, you know, it just didn't make. <laughs> didn't make. I feel like you need to take a moment with that. This is what my mother says about people who were cute kids but did not grow up to be attractive adults. I don't know what happened. He just didn't make. So where did they find... Like he says he takes the story and he, you know, riffs on it. Where did they find the bare bones of the story? What is that? Well, yeah, like I said, they say they found and stumble upon, but they didn't. They made it up. They made the whole thing up. They the made whole the whole thing. Th- why didn't you just say made they made the whole thing? That wouldn't have been any fun. But why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? Because it makes them sound so much more creative. They still haven't come out and said it. What? I haven't found any. I like didn't confession? find any interviews or confessions. I mean, I didn't listen through all of their podcasts, but I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it is, you know, it's without doubt made up. From the time that it appeared on their podcast to the time the Kickstarter was live, it's four months. Yeah, no one's ever written a screenplay in four months. Oh, and film test footage. No one's ever filmed test footage and written a screenplay in four months. Like, that doesn't already make movies and do this all the time. And they also, like, so they created all the websites. They created the uh, OliviaMabel.com. And they created the 
number where you can call. They create a bunch of like audio clips and they also created a webpage for the paranormal investigator. <laughs> it's very Blair Witch. Yeah, it's really, it, I, it's pretty decently done. Pretty well done. But it's all just made up by them. But it's so funny because this has really not been thoroughly debunked online. I know like Generation Y did it. Generation Y, actually, I'm going to fess up. I, I have listened to their podcast on this. And I was really impressed with their investigation. They are very much like... They research like we do normally where it's a lot of like reading and documents and that kind of stuff. But like one of the guys, Justin, actually called the police and like he spoke did. with them and stuff. And yeah. I was really impressed with the thoroughness of yes. their investigation. Yes. Yeah. No, so like, you know, it's it's been debunked. But uh, not on Reddit. <laughs> not on Reddit. No, no, that wouldn't be any fun. And there's like just enough plausible deniability. There's just enough room for doubt. And so, you know, it's very, very Blair Witchy. Mm-hmm. And there's another big tell if you are just a really observant person. There are, you know, photos of the altar. Mm-hmm. And one of the drawings that's in the like mess is a Slender Man. Fuck that. Why? I feel like it was so classy until that. It was a classy hoax. That's too much. That's why you didn't make your Kickstarter. No, it's not. Actually, I, I could see myself doing that. I give him like this little tiny tell. But if it's... Be- like, it's, if it- it's no, it's like in the bottom corner. Like in the margins, of basically. The image is like half of a drawing. But and if, if it figures in the movie, it, boo. I don't think it was. Because one of the things people bring up about talpas, about these beings that can become created by pure thought... Uh-huh. Is that Slenderman is a is the case of a Tulpa. That there's so many people in the world thinking about him, you know, especially a few years ago, that he actually came to life. And they use that as a excuse, I guess you can say, or like a, a reasoning behind an impetus. Yeah, almost. the Slender Man attack. Okay. You know, the two girls that were just sentenced like a, a few weeks ago. Yeah, we talked about that back on our our creepypasta episode. I mean, I feel like if that were the case, like so many fictional characters would be real. Maybe they are. I mean, I feel like the guys from Supernatural would definitely exist twice. (laughs) They'd appear in a lot of... (laughs) (laughs) A lot of porn. A lot of porn. porn. (laughs) And fanfic would be just burning up. But you see Tulpa used in other, you know, kind of pop paranormal Mm -hmm. stuff, uh... Ed and Lorraine Warren had a mask that they said was used for black magic rituals to create a physical manifestation of a tulpa. X-Files has not one, but two episodes with tulpas. One from the original run and one of the new episodes. Which we're not there yet. <laughs> we're rewatching X-Files and it's made our life very happy. We suggest you do it too. And Supernatural, as I speaking said. Of, <laughs> Has an episode, Hell House, which is a ghost is murdering teenagers in an abandoned house. And the brothers Winchester discovered that the ghost is actually a tulpa that's deriving its powers from a website where teenagers share legends about the haunted house and its ghost. I feel like the digital world makes this this idea more plausible in a way. Like everybody just go and think about this thing until it's real. And you can get an army of people thinking of this thing. 
It's an interesting idea. And, and like the just collective thought, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that could have been a way we went with this episode. Well, it reminds me of like, I know you heard this when you were a kid. Like, what if everyone in China jumped? <laughs> you know, like what would happen? But, you know, in that episode, they they still keep framing around this Tibetan Buddhist idea. There's a Tibetan letter painted in the house by teenage vandals to serve as a psychic anchor. And, you know, Sam explains, so there was an incident in Tibet in 1950. A group of monks visualized a golem in their heads. They meditate on it so hard, they bring the thing to life out of thin air. That was 20 monks. Imagine what 10,000 web surfers can do. Well, not nearly as much because they can't concentrate for five seconds. And that is the interesting thing is that it's become this, like, you don't have to concentrate on it. It's you just, just have to... enough people. Oh, Matt, like a, a threshold. Like, you just reach the... Is it like, like signing a petition? Like signing an online petition, basically? Yeah, they don't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, David Bowie's God. We talked about this. And, you know, they actually had an episode, I didn't know about this, because uh, we haven't watched Supernatural in forever, that, like, pretty much, like, prophesied the Slenderman stabbings. Oh, no. <laughs> like, a year before it happened. Kind of craziness. Oh, no. Yeah, but anyway. Or did it prophesy it, or did they just say, we should do that thing we saw in Supernatural? That's a good question. Okay. For another day. <laughs> Okay, I did not know that Tibetan monks or lamas had uh, golems. I kind of thought golems were were of another world religion. Yeah, there's a little obfuscation there. Okay, cool. But that's a TV show. Yeah, fine. Fine. I'll allow it. Secondly, I thought they were kind of like Peace, Love, and Cocoa Pops. Like, I thought they were very chill. These things seem angry, more Aleister Crowley in nature than, you know... The path of Buddhism. Good point. So, Tibetan tradition, huh? <laughs> so the idea of tulpas, as we think of them in the case of pop culture and the internet, this thing there, thousands of people can think something, or even just one person, their errant thoughts, or if they concentrate on something long enough, it can become real, really may have some Tibetan roots, but has more to do with something called Theosophy. Oh, oh me. Oh me, I know. What? Can, you want to talk about theosophy? Well, I said like a few episodes back, we were going to get back to theosophy. Oh, theosophy is a fun grab bag of just esoteric goodness. Right, so we talked about theosophy extremely briefly with the Venusians and the UFO religions mm-hmm. that came about. And so now we're going to dive in. So I'm going set up, to set it up for you. Thank you. So we've talked plenty about spiritualism. Yes, and that's more my jam than theosophy, I have to tell you. And we talked about kind of the milieu that spiritualism came out of. This was this great change in world and the United States society. Christianity was really being kind of challenged. Uh, With spiritualism, you got this kind of anti-clericalism, this anti-institutionalism, this kind of social liberalism. Yes, the free love portion of it. Very, very upsetting to many people in in Victorian America and England. Yeah, and this this progress of, of humanity as a whole and the individual going forward. And spiritualism depended on and gave expression to Western occultism. 
which can also be called esotericism. And this can be seen in lots of fun stuff that was happening, such as mesmerism, Swedenborganism, which we talked about him. Yes, way back in the day. William James. Our, our William James that we love to talk about, founder of American psychology and psychical researcher. His father was a big Swedenborg follower, and that's kind of how he got his interest in investigating and proving these phenomena. Right, and so you had all this stuff, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, changes in science, renewed interest in science and religion together, proving or disproving each other. Darwin. Mm-hmm. And then also this kind of interest in Asian religions and ideas and kind of starting to integrate them into this grand religious synthesis. So these occultists are really nowadays you'll hear them called esoterics because now occult kind of has a different it means cult. Meaning. And cult means Satan and probably chill, child evil, sacrifice. Evil or, witches yeah. dancing on the Sabbath kind of thing. Which is not what it means, but no. that's what the, you know. The connotation yes. has become. And with this esotericism, it kind of includes a study of writings felt to contain secrets known by ancient civilizations which have been forgotten. So spiritualism led to the revival of esotericism, which last time that was big was during the whole alchemical thing, mm-hmm. and came to a head with the development of theosophy at the end of the 19th century by Madame Blavatsky. Now, she would attempt to revive an ancient religion to unify the world, all under the direction of the ascended masters, a secret brotherhood of superintelligent, highly evolved Mahatmas living in Tibet. Or India, or somewhere. I, that's what she said. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have a lot of that's what she said, I don't know moments. Just going forward, I promise. Uh, we're going to do our best with Madame Blavatsky. She's such a character. She is such a character. Let's get some definitions on the record just before we go forward. Things we need to know about theosophy. It is intuited. It is not studied. It is like you open yourself up to the universe, man, and then the universe gives you the knowledge you need. So whenever you hear a 20-something white girl going, you know, I just put it out into the universe, and if I'm supposed to meet someone, I will. She's practicing her own form of theosophy. If you think when you hear all this about theosophy, this sounds a lot like New Age religion. That's because it's New Age religion seeds. Because it is. Yes. So it's based on mystical insight, and you can't work your way to it you have to be enlightened to be enlightened it's very there's a steep curve there and the new advent catholic encyclopedia informs us that it is a term used to designate the knowledge of god supposed to be attained through direct intuition of the divine essence it's different from theology which is knowledge of god obtained through revelation so I don't think this, this isn't like describing what it was originally though. This is kind of what it became. Honey, there was no definition originally. Oh, oh ask Madame Blavatsky. She will tell you in a magic letter. You want to you talk about her now? Of course we have to. Okay, you want to talk about her now? Let's talk about her now. So she's one of my favorites. Sure about that. Oh, I love her. She's terrible. <laughs> she was born Elena Petrovna. Van Han in the Russian Empire, which is today Ukraine, in 1831. Now, you will hear many times when you go to look for her 
biography that she is a countess. She's not. But her grandmother was a princess. A little royal blood there. Yes. That family has been all over Russian history. And they're kind of like a rogues gallery of characters. Never conforming. And her grandmother was a very interesting woman. She was a botanist and she spoke five languages and she was an artist, which is very unusual for the late 1700s in Imperial Russia, I would say. Now, as a child, she was either already like a metaphysical mastermind or she was a master manipulator by the time she was like old enough to talk. I'm going with the second. (laughs) Well, maybe, probably. She, of course, lived in a household with a lot of serf servants because you know they were not yet liberated and they were very superstitious and she leaned in. Why not? She was born using the old calendar on July 31st and there were certain spirits in a house which could only be placated by a person born on either July 30th or July 31st so that she already had a special hoodoo about her from the beginning. That's lucky. Now, when she was young, there was this 14-year-old serf named Pavlik, and he annoyed her, and she told him that she would send a rusalka to tickle him to death. Oh, no, not the rusalkas. She did, and she pointed at a tree and yelled, there is one coming out of that tree. Now, the boy did not return home with her, and her governess kind of disappeared, and he was found by fishermen a few days later floating in the water. <gasps> The Rusalka got him. The Rusalka got him. And from that day on, the serfs were sure she was magic. And almost, needless to say, she was frequently exorcised by her Eastern Orthodox family. Oh, fun times. And her parents were separated. Now, this has been the case most of her life because her dad was in the military and often sent off to do campaigns and whatnot. And she always idolized her father, probably because he wasn't around to screw up or hurt her feelings. Right, easy to do that. But her mother, she hated. <sighs> and she would tell people that her mother died at her birth, which is impossible because she has two younger siblings. But she would, like, just kill her off all the time in her biography. So serious electric complex mm-hmm. with this one. And her mother was kind of this, like, burgeoning feminist author. Interesting. She was called the Russian George Sand. Okay. Um, she wrote and translated and, you know, moved in very literati circles but she died of tuberculosis when she was only 28 years old and so helena and i'm gonna call her helena i think it's probably helena but it's gonna come out both ways sorry helena and her younger sister vera and her younger brother leonid were sent off to live with princess grandma in a magical castle yes legit were there fairies this is russia i don't think there are fairies in russia i think the fairies kill you (laughs) in russia the fairies kill you Now, the princess was very strict and straight-laced, and they butted heads often, but despite the temperamental differences between the two of them, it seems to have been a really charmed childhood. In a dark, damp Russian castle. Yes. Well, as charmed as one can be in Russia. Now, her favorite person to visit was Baranig Boirak, who was an old man who was frequently covered from head to toe in bees and said to be a sorcerer, which I love. Is that person real? Yes. Is he? You don't believe there's a bee man in Russia that's said to be a sorcerer. Can you turn into a bear? Yes. Of course, then they'd be safe. <laughs> in the villa they lived in resembled a medieval castle, and it had underground labyrinths Ooh. that they were allowed to explore with many guards and attendants and things, only after begging a long time. But 
Elena loved it and she eventually like made herself a little hidey hole down in the labyrinths where she would go to read her grandmother's esoteric books that she'd inherited from that sorcerer uncle who was into alchemy, but what? that's another story. What? Yeah, and she also played with a little hunchback ghost boy um, oh, okay. that was her buddy. Oh, we're just going to gloss over this. Thing. Yes. Right. Well, if I went into detail about all of the crazy stories, we would need a seven part episode. And there was also like a big kind of natural history museum full of taxidermied animals. I think that was also called a parlor. <laughs> <laughs> just That's Russian for parlor. My uncle had a parlor like that. I know. I've seen the pictures. They're amazing. He was a big game hunter in Africa. <laughs> Before it was unethical. <laughs> there were more animals. <laughs> Until he got there. Exactly. Exactly. Vera kept a childhood journal. And a lot of these stories come from that journal. And she said, each of the stuffed animals, Helena claimed, had taken her into its confidence and divulged the history of its life in previous incarnations. Never can I forget the life and adventures of the tall white flamingo. He had been ages ago, she told us, not a bird, but a real man. And he'd committed fearful crimes and a murder for which a great genius had changed him into a flamingo a brainless bird, sprinkling his two wings with the blood of his victims, and thus condemning him to wander forever in the deserts and the marshes. A murderous flamingo. I know, it's the funniest thing. It's a great imagination. Really? I know. But Vera was terrified of the flamingo forever after. I would be. Like, wake up back, the flamingo's gonna get me, mama! I mean, it's a very different introduction to flamingos than I had, which was animated Alice in Wonderland croquet. So Vera would refer to her sister as the strangest girl one has ever seen. And sometimes when she was writing about her, she would call her just crazy Helena. Now, her first major miracle of the saint, sainted woman who founded a religion okay. was Tekla Lebernorf. That now, sounds like a person, not a miracle. It will. You'll see. So every night for years, she said, she'd been being visited by this old woman and she would come through using automatic writing, which was one of Helena's favorite ways to chat with people who were not alive. And she called herself Tekla Lebernorf. And she gave a very detailed account of her life, her marriage, the history of her daughter and her thrilling romance and her son who had committed suicide and who sometimes appeared in person to lament his sufferings. Tecla went on to describe her death and to give the name and address of the Lutheran pastor who had administered her last sacrament. And she also reproduced a petition that she had presented to the Tsar, writing it out verbatim, even including a remark from Nicholas written in the margins. Tsar Nicholas. That's impressive. It's very impressive. A lot of this comes from a book by a woman named Marion Mead. Uh, I want to give her credit because she has put together an exhaustive and thoroughly researched account of this woman's life, which is not easy to do. She went back and did a ton of uh, sourcing from original materials and God love her for it. Now, the family learned of Tekla's visits and they had her... Exercise. Yes. <laughs> not exercise. Exorcise. Yeah, no. And all this time she'd been longing for her father to come take her away of course and he was absent therefore perfect not like her stupid mom who was just an early feminist scholar mother of three children suffering with illness and dead by the time she was 28 that bitch bitch but anyway 
He came and visited around 1845, and she showed off this mad TL game she had going on with Tecla. Was he impressed? He objected. Okay. But not because it was sacrilegious, because it was silly. (laughs) That's far too silly. But he did have some of his relatives begin to compile a Russian dossier. I'm not kidding. That's what he called it. A dossier, not a Russian dossier. Because he was Russian, that'd be redundant. But a dossier on Tekla Lebronov. So he was at least curious. He was like, I'm going to check this shit out. And it did seem like a lot of the details they were finding matched up. So she's like psychic or something. Yeah. And he's like, awesome, whatever. And just like goes on about his business. He's pretty sure she's still faking it. Now, Tekla was finally allowed to rest in peace and quit the dog and pony show act when Tekla's nephew came to visit Helena's family. Oh, great. And he informed them all that Tekla was not dead. Oh, oh, well, phantasms of the living. (laughs) It's a hell of a phantasm. That's basically a phone line. Now, the family was exasperated and concluded that this was just the devil and said Helena had been tricking them all. And she was like, it's not the devil, but I don't know what it is. But then years later, she came up with a solution. She said... It was the work of my mind calling the facts relayed by Tekla the objective reproduction of what my own mind read and saw in the astral light. See, it was just like astral something. I don't know. Now, another of her early miracles involved moldy apples and a dead house servant. Her aunt had this old servant who used to keep fruit in her dresser drawers until it got ripe. Read moldy. Yeah. And then she got sick because she liked it soft. She probably didn't have teeth. Teeth. I know. That's what I thought. And she got sick and the aunt was like, okay, she can't stop me. Somebody get up there and clean the dresser out. But then the woman's like on her deathbed and she's like, all I really want is one of my nice ripe apples. Oh, nasty. And the aunt's like, shit. They go out to get the moldy apple. And just as they're like getting ready to take it up to her, somebody comes out and says she died. Oh, that's too bad. Too bad. No moldy apple. So they go upstairs to go check on her and they walk upstairs and there she is sitting on the edge of her bed eating an apple. (gasps) There's the phantasms of the living. (laughs) Right. And then she, of course, disappears. But Helena says it's as if her last thought had been made manifest. Hmm. Interesting. That sounds familiar. Right. So in the midst of all her occult study and she was studying a lot. The family was like, you're the oldest granddaughter. Grandma princess says, you got to get out there and shake your money maker. So she's a noble birth. She's got to get married. Got to get married. So I'm sure they have an awesome lineup. She goes to the bride's fairs and like gets stalled up and puts up with it for a while. But then she didn't. She later wrote, I hate dress, finery, and civilized society. I despise a ballroom, and how much I despise it will be proved by the following. When I was hardly 16, I was forced one day to go to a dancing party, a great ball at the Viceroy's. My protests were not listened to by my parents, who told me they would have me dressed up, or rather, according to fashion, undressed, for the ball by servants, by force, if I did not go willingly. I then deliberately plunged my foot and leg into a kettle of boiling water until it was boiled quite raw. Of course, it scalded horribly, but I remained at home for six months. I guess that solves that problem. No more dancing. What's some ingenuity there? Something. 
And then for a brief time, she had this fling with this mysterious Russian prince who really did exist and really did know her. And there really was correspondence. So that's like not a thing she made up. His name was Prince Golitsyn. And his uncle had been very into alchemy and supposedly studied under Cagliostro and St. Germain. Oh, no. Oh, no. So he's legit AF. And he was very knowledgeable about mediumship and clairvoyance. And his grandfather, okay, I'm sorry, this is grandfather, not his uncle, but whatever, had this dream of creating like a universal occult church. And Helena was like, That's a great hmm, idea. Holding on to that one too. But he disappeared from Tiflis before she could put a ring on it. Sad story. So then enter Mr. Madame Blavatsky. Mr. Madame Blavatsky. <laughs> well, he was Blavatsky. He had the last name first. That's where it comes from. But. He's barely a footnote in her biography, so he's Mr. Madame Blavatsky. And she called him the plumeless raven because he had a receding hairline. And his name was Nikifor, and he was going to marry her, like it or not. And her governess was like, you're kind of a bitch. You'll never get a man, not even the plumeless raven. And so out of spite for her governess, she wrings a proposal out of him. Sounds positively Jane Austen. Right. So she's like, I'll show her. And then he proposes, and she accepts, but then she's like, huh, huh, I only said yes, ironically. It was a joke. And everyone's like, uh, no. (laughs) Too bad, you said yes. Take backs. Jack, Jack, no trade back. And so then she's taken toward the altar, kicking and screaming all the way. Now, she later told her biographer, Senate, details of details about my marriage. Well, now they say I wanted to marry the old whistle breeches myself and let it be. My father was a thousand miles off. My grandmother was too ill. And it was as I told you. I had engaged myself despite my governess, never thinking that I could no longer disengage myself. Well, karma followed sin. And so at their wedding, the priest says, Thou shalt love, honor, and obey thy husband. And she muttered, Surely I shall not. No. Audibly. (gasps) Gasp. And so cut to her, Surely Notting. Poor plumeless raven. He was really good to her. Like, by all accounts, like, he supported her ass for a long time. She adamantly insisted, never was I his wife. I swear it up to the hour of my death. Never have I been a wife to Blavatsky, although I lived under his roof for a year. It lasted about three months. So, one of her... things in later life like one of her big retcons on her biography like one of the things she wants to delete she wants to be a virgin like to have never had sex Uh, very virgin mary kind of thing yeah and she deletes men often and so this is we see her insistence starting here like i may have been married and then fuck him Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) i say that but maybe more like vestal virgins kind of thing you know, get those powers from being a virgin. She's always seen as sort of like a sensual base figure. Like people always assumed she was having affairs with people. There was always gossip about that. Like it was something that was attached to her from a very early age. People were projecting that upon her because she was not a traditional Eastern Orthodox woman. Must be some hanky-panky going Mm. on. So she resisted them. So she ran away. She says she stole a horse and rode through the Russian mountains by herself that's doubtful it does seem she did leave on horseback she was actually a very skilled horsewoman i'm sure she got all that from being russian nobility she would not ride side saddle of course not 
Which is probably, again, how the rumors got started. That's right. She can't be a virgin if she doesn't ride side saddle. Exactly. That's just math. She later wrote, I, hating my husband in the Blavatsky, it may be wrong, but still, such a nature God gave me. I left him, abandoned him, a virgin. I shall produce documents proving this, although he himself is not such a swine as to deny it. And he refrained from making any public comment whatsoever about Helena pretty much for the rest of his life. He's a good raven, good plumeless raven. <laughs> good little pet. So she's a runaway bride. Her family's pissed. On a horse. Runaway bride on a horse in Russia. What is she to do? Join the circus. She ran away to the circus. She literally ran away to the circus. Going to circus is a bareback trick rider in Constantinople. But she didn't want to admit this in later biographies. So she kind of reframed it as being in this hedge jumping competition and being kind of a horse whisperer. And, but she supposedly gets in this massive riding accident doing this hedge jumping competition. She was supposed to jump like 18 hedges and she was on the 17th and something happened. But then one of the like masters or something, some astral figure comes in and saves her life. Oh. And she goes to Nirvana for like six weeks and begins to become enlightened. I don't think that's how that works. I don't either, but that's what. That's what the story is. That's what she said. I know, but that's uh-huh, what she said. Uh-huh. So while in Constantinople, she met Countess Kiselev, who is a 60-year-old woman who is of noble birth and decided to bring Helena around as her lady's companion. So they ran away to Egypt to learn about the occult. Oh, very Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much. And while they were there, she met a man named Leighton Rawson, and he was an American artist, scholar, and traveler. And he was fascinated with the mysteries of the East... And he was a native of Chester, Vermont. But he'd once disguised himself as a Muslim divinity student and joined a caravan and made a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm. So he had a weakness for wild adventures, disguises, and colorful women. Found a few of theirs. Yes. So he and Helena set out in Cairo to go meet this man who could charm snakes. And together they... Sat at his feet and learned his art. Actually, he's like, he tells him he'll sit at his feet and learn his art. And the guy's like, I want your currency. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. They were dressed up as Muslim men. Both of them. Of course. And he was like. Come on. The beard's so fake. (laughs) And they they were like, yeah, it is. So, but he, apparently they did learn some snake charming. And she also learned to love opium and hashish, which she would continue to enjoy pretty much the rest of her life. And tell other people they too should enjoy. That explains so much. Yes, it kind of does. Rawson said of her, she could win in a single interview the admiration of any man who had ever lived outside himself long enough to discover that he was not three quarters of the universe. Nice. <laughs> so then she switched over and started traveling with another woman. This was pretty much the only way she had to support herself. Being born in the station was to kind of serve as almost like a lady's maid. She was traveling with a woman named Princess Bagrashin Muransky. And she was Georgian. And so together, they went to London in 1851. So the next seven years of her life, questionable. (laughs) What exactly happened? Even in her kind of approved biography by Senate, he even said the obvious embarrassment of my task on the subject. Because Helena had kept no diary and had a poor memory. Actually, she did her best to be quite specific about her itinerary. In July of 1851, she allegedly went to Canada to study the Indians. 
moved on to the United States where she spent a year and bought land, but silly her, lost the title papers, and drifted around in Central and South America, and then in 1852 went to the West Indies, where she wrote to a certain Englishman, whom she had known in Germany, asking him to join her on a trip to the Orient, and with the Englishman and a Hindu, she sailed via the Cape of Ceylon, and from there to Bombay, where the party split up, and she was determined to enter Tibet, so she set out alone for Nepal, but the British resident would not allow her to cross the border. So she went to southern India, and then on to Java and Singapore, before returning to England. So now we're 1853, and the Crimean War is going on, which is a really bad time to be a Russian in England. So she decided to go back to the U.S., then went to New York and Chicago before going across the Rocky Mountains in a covered wagon. And at San Francisco, she boarded a ship bound for India via Japan and eventually landed in Calcutta. So in 1856, for a second time, she tried to get into Tibet, and at Lahore, she encountered the father of her old governess, Antoya Kulwin, his two companions, all of who planned to penetrate Tibet under various disguises. So accompanied by a shaman, they traveled through Kashmir to Leh, the chief city of Ladakh. But the brothers were picked up and deported before they had walked 16 miles into the forbidden territory. So Helena, wearing a disguise provided by the shaman, successfully crossed the frontier and passed, quote, far on into the generally inaccessible country. Now, after a number of supernatural experience, some frightening, she was rescued by a party of 25 Lamist horsemen and swooped back to the frontier. In India, once more, she was warned by her invisible protector, that the Sepoy Rebellion would soon begin and that she was advised to leave the country. So she sailed aboard a Dutch vessel and made her way from Madras to Java, arriving in Europe in 1858. This is a hell of a story. Quoth the biographer Marion Mead, unfortunately, none of this seems to be true. Oh, well, that's too bad. She had a great imagination. She really did. It's her strongest asset. So what she was really doing mostly around this time was traveling around with a man named Metrovich. She met him in Constantinople and he was a middle-aged opera singer. And they had this on-again, off-again relationship that lasted for like 20 years. And he many times wrote her family and declared that they were married and her family declared that no, they were not. You forgot about the plumeless raven. (laughs) Whoops. Nevertheless, he would continue to skulk into and out of her life for years. So after cavorting about Europe with this opera singer, her journals from the time are like all about the opera scene. It's quite uh. funny. Like, it's like, oh, that pompous tenor was here again. <laughs> but she returned to Russia because she wanted to reconnect with her father and Vera. And she had become quite adept at creating all manner of phenomena by this point. And her dad said it was nothing more than old women's superstition. But his friends, who were taken with her rapping and bells and various mediumistic... Spiritualist kind of yeah. tactics. ...were charmed, and they asked him if he would participate in an experiment. Okay. They said, go in the next room. And write down a question, and we'll see if the spirits will come through and give us an answer. That seems like a good test. And they said, what shall you say, old friend, if the word written by you is correctly repeated? Will you not feel compelled to believe in such a case? And he said, if that happens, you can prepare to offer me as an inmate to a lunatic asylum. So he's not 
got a positive attitude. He's not buying it. So he goes in the other room, writes his stuff on his paper and puts it in his pocket. And he comes back and there are raps and they produce the word Zeitchik. That's okay. What's that? Question on his paper read, what was the name of my favorite war horse, which I rode during my first Turkish campaign? That is very specific. And in parentheses below, he wrote Zeitchik. Huh. Crazy. Yes. And he became passionately fond of experimenting with his daughter's powers. Now, her time in Russia was very unusual. Vera wrote in her diary at the time, All the persons living on the premises saw constantly, even in full noonday, vague human shadows walking about the open rooms, appearing in the gardens, in the flower beds, in front of the house, and near an old chapel. And there were just a plethora of goings on. A woman discovered her locked drawers, that there were letters, which contained family secrets that she didn't think anyone else in the world knew a locked piano would play a march lamps would extinguish as though like a big wind had blown through objects would fly through the air tables would flip over as would couches etc it sounds like what we call like a poltergeist today it sounds like it's the house is haunted right yeah yeah classic victorian haunted house yes well we will get some theories about poltergeist later and i will just say that I wouldn't rule it out. (laughs) Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, according to Vera, Helena had begun to make distinctions between the different kinds of entities that she would encounter. There were brainless elementals, which were the shells of departed beings, whom she mockingly referred to as spooks. And then there were these superhuman men with whom she was in constant communication who visited her in astral bodies. So there are... Parlor ghost, not dead animals, not that kind of parlor. But there are like seance ghosts, and then there are super smart people that she actually wanted to talk to. That are just like projecting their consciousness or their Mm -hmm. thoughts Mm -hmm. to her from some distant, ancient, mysterious land. Right. Like Tibet. Or India. Or somewhere. Yeah. That's going to be key. (laughs) She even, at this time, reconciled with a plumeless raven for about a year. But then she later wrote, that it was not the happiest of reunions. She says, I lacked the patience to live life with a fool, and I went away. <laughs> She's kind of cold. But she was still living under his roof when she took up again with Mitrovich, <gasps> our opera singer. But he was in the process of marrying another opera singer, so that Hall had to be kept very much on the DL. And then she got involved with a spiritualist named Meyendorf, and he was friends with Didi Hume. <gasps> Talked about him on one of our Audio Dime episodes. I love Dee Dee Hume. He did not love Madame Blavatsky, and she did not love him. There was some bad blood there. He would eventually, like, out this whole affair with Meyendorf. <gasps> catty. In papers. It's oh, he's so bitchy. I love him. But anyway. So she was juggling all of these ineligible bachelors, plumeless raven, opera singer, and this new guy. And... It's going to be very controversial to say what I'm about to say. Oh, really? Yes. What is that? She became pregnant. <gasps> oh, no. So if you go to her wiki page, like even like the most basic biography of her, anywhere you read, this is not there. She adopted this child. Oh, okay. She never had a child of her own. But that's very suspicious. Don't be silly. Right. It is. And there are letters from the time that kind of out her hmm. as actually having had this child. And apparently there was not even like the shadow of a doubt that it could have possibly belonged to the plumeless raven. Well, she never had sex with him. <laughs> right. But like she was not able to sell that to anybody. So she was kind of like sent off to this little village in the middle of nowhere. 
And she had this child called Yuri, who was born around 1861. And by all reports, she was a very devoted mother. But after his birth, she went into a bit of a dissociative state, and she was sort of astral projecting about like crazy. I don't find this hard to believe. All of this had been incredibly traumatic. None of the men really wanted to own up to being a father. Her family, of course, is horrified. And he was born with some pretty severe physical deformities. Okay, okay. So it was a very traumatic event. In her grief. Yeah. She dealt with this by astral projection. Yes. Okay. But he was always very sickly. But she traveled with him openly. And Mitrovich would accompany them sometimes. He was kind of the one that took on the father role. Was he the father? Most people think it was Meierndorf. Who'd she say the father was? God, I don't know. (laughs) Kind of her and everybody else think that Meierndorf was actually the father of the child. But he was buried by Mitrovich when he died in 1867. She was on a ship in the Gulf of Naplia when the powder magazine exploded. and <laughs> Had a weird life, Jacob. But there were only 17 survivors, and she was one of them. Mitrovich, who she'd been traveling at the time, did not. So that is how he dies. I'm sure she saw that as just like fate. Oh, one of her protectors like pulled her out of the wreckage. Of you course, know, like, yeah. so. Then she went back to Cairo and bought several monkeys, which I just love that that's the thing that she was like, you know what I need? <laughs> You know what will make this better? Monkeys. A pack of monkeys. She had some monkeys. I don't want a monkey. I want a pack of monkeys. I mean, I think they sell them in multi-packs. She went to the Monkey Sam's. <laughs> Costco monkey value pack. But then uh, she also got several mediums, apparently also in a value pack. She had a coupon. She had a coupon. She hated mediums. She thought they were like deplorables. But she was like... They're stupid idiots. They'll make me their queen, basically. She was never really a spiritualist. She didn't care for that sort of thing. She was more of a philosopher. But she was very good at creating spiritualistic phenomena. And while she was in Cairo, and she was kind of at the head of the Society of Mediums, they got caught faking. Oh, no. The the other mediums did. always happen. (laughs) And the press was unable to make a clear distinction between Helena and these silly charlatans and she got lumped in in the write-ups as having been part of all of these shenanigans and she was like never mind I'll just leave the continent so she got on her horse and rode across the Atlantic Ocean I bet she would agree to that. <laughs> no but she went to the center of the spiritualistic universe New York. New York City she arrived in 1873 and then she kind of pulled a trump <laughs> What? She like called the papers and pretended to be a press agent for herself, basically. No, no. But she did. She called the New York Sun and was like, let's chat. I've had many adventures. So they print her adventures, sure, without fact checking them. Also without including her name. So it doesn't work out so great for her. Yes. Kind of defeats the purpose. But she was not discouraged. She went on and continued trying to gain entree into this society of the spiritualist elite. And she even met the father of the movement, Andrew Jackson Davis, the Poughkeepsie seer. We will come back. (laughs) One day. One day. And she made her voyage to Chitterden. You know Chitterden. What's a Chitterden? (laughs) It is a spiritualistic retreat. Oh, that's where they would do like the, the farm experiments. Right. It was where the Edies had their seances uh, before they were discredited. 
But anyway, it was a very famous like little farm and you would go out there and you would sit for seances and people would record the events and write about the phenomena, etc. And so she had heard that this particular researcher, Henry Steele Alcott, was going to be there and she decided she should also be there and would very much like him to like her and would very much like him to write her up in his publication. So she knows the power of publicity. She is a smart, shrewd woman. So every evening at 10 minutes to 7, a procession of spirits would begin to drift in and out of the Edie cabinet at intervals from 1 to 5 minutes. So Hanto and the Indians would make their appearance, and these were kind of common spirits that people would draw forth from beyond the veil. So wait. Imagine you're doing shadow puppets, right? And somebody's like, I can make a rabbit and an alligator. I think these are like the equivalent of like the rabbit and the alligator. But she had better tricks. She got the butterfly. She got everything. (laughs) So she had Hassan Aga, a wealthy Tiflis merchant dressed in a black astrakhan cap and tasseled hood who said three times that he had a secret to reveal but would never say it. There was Safar Ali Beck, the man who had guarded Madame for Nikafor, and now was transformed into a gigantic curd warrior carrying a feathered spear. There was a Circassian Nakor who bowed, smiled, and said, Chuck Yachti, meaning all right, a big black guy in a white and gold horned headdress who was supposedly a conjurer she had met in Africa. And there were some other not as exciting <laughs> beings that she would call forth, such as an old woman in a babushka. Who saw the whole JFK That's assassination. What I was thinking. That's exactly what I thought. That is more interesting than you would think. <laughs> Little chubby dude in a black evening suit and frilled white shirt who had a Greek cross of St. Anne hanging around his neck and all sorts of things so she's producing spooks as she would call them spooks she's not a fan of these spirits it really upset her to see spiritualists getting so excited about them she would later say because she understood that these people or these phantoms were not actually their mothers and fathers or babies or whatever but they were the dregs of personality that had once lived all the passion, thoughts, and vices that could not follow the liberated soul and spirit after physical death. But then, for her final performance, she brought forth George Dix. And he really offered some proof. He brought the clasp from a military medal that was worn by her father when he was buried. She knew it was real because it was broken, and she herself had broken it. Years before. Goes to real. Goes to real. Goes to real. Done. Proof positive, man. A physical manifestation of a one of a kind item. Clasp. It wasn't the metal. No, it was not the metal. It was just the clasp. It was the clasp of the metal. But Alcott. Alcott loves this shit. All about it. He loves this shit. All about it. And he writes it up. And of course, writes it up glowingly. But it's attacked by this pesky researcher named Dr. Beard, and he says that he believed he could duplicate any of the materializations that Helena had produced under similar circumstances. And she responds, 
I do hereby finally and publicly challenge Dr. Beard to the amount of $500 to produce before a public audience under the same conditions the manifestations herein attested, or failing this to bear the ignominious consequences of his proposed expose. And like Houdini peeps his head out of the cabinet and says, what? <laughs> you, you got $500? She did not. She did not. Uh, okay, I can... Dude, I mean, I'm not doing this right now, but I could do this. <laughs> he was astral projecting. I understand. Say, I understand. Yeah. But she felt pretty safe calling his bluff. And he, she decided that he was a publicity-seeking headhunter looking for a missionary to eat. A person who went around causing flap doodles. Flap doodles. Flap doodle has never sounded more intimidating than when he's in a Russian accent. Flap doodle. It was one of her favorite words. So he didn't take her up on it on her offer but she carried on this feud with beard and it ginned up some really good publicity and she was enjoying the very warm glow of the press spotlight of course i mean she told the most unbelievable stories because they weren't really you know like weighed down with things like facts who needs those (laughs) the reporter would like light her cigarette and he just kept repeating that's a remarkable statement and she'd go it's true (laughs) and she name dropped all the time like like ghosties? No, like she'd be like, "Oh yes, I know Didi Hume. <laughs> he hates me. I hate him. He hates me. We hate each other." Uh, and she said that she had translated all of Charles Darwin's works into Russian when she was in Africa. Well, that's impressive. All right? She, you know, knew Tsar Alexander and just like anybody you white people know. <laughs> Like, basically, it's what she was doing. Who, who do you like? Oh, yeah, I have. <laughs> exactly. And her star was rising. But she has this incredible ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Like, it is a lifelong quest for her, it seems. And so she then throws her full weight behind defending these obviously fraudulent mediums, Jenny and Nelson Holmes. Oh, so, like, they were debunked. And she's like, no, it's true. Yeah. What'd they do? Oh, God, it was bad. Um, what? So they had the spirit they would conjure from their cabinet called Katie. Oh, and it wasn't like vaginal ectoplasm. No, it's Marjorie. Because that would be bad, in my opinion. Marjorie did that. Yeah, I know. A different medium. No, but they had a spirit called Katie. Oh, okay. And Katie would come to all their seances and show up, and she was like a fixture on the seance circuit. Crazy. Okay, so... She didn't look like either of them, so people were very impressed with her. Yeah. She seemed very, like, like, a real person, you know, like, not a gauzy spirit, not... It was just like, wow. Cool. And they got a serious scientific researcher, who's an older man, to come and put them under test conditions and investigate Katie. Well, that's ballsy. <laughs> right. Well, he investigated Katie thoroughly, and... When the affair between the actress playing Katie and the scientist was outed, no, things kind of came crashing down. Mm, yeah, but she was like, "No, it's real." Yes, even after this all came out, she's like, "I will defend until my last breath the Holmes," and everyone's <laughs> like, "That's such a bad idea." Pick someone else. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she went all in defending them, and it damaged her credibility. So during this low point. She made one true friend. Olcott. No. <laughs> okay, who? She made him. Oh. His name was John King. Okay. And she said that he was the only person who could make up for her strained relationship with her family and, you know, being estranged from everyone she'd ever known. But it was his name was John King. 
He was a disembodied person she knew. He had a black beard, and she says he had a little white Chinese saucer upside down cap. And she said that he was a personality, definite living spiritual personality. And he did her the honor of visiting me incessantly. Incessantly? Okay. So he was a very popular personality on the seance circuit. What do you mean? I mean, like, lots of mediums could make him. It was the... Who's the bird? If you the, the bird other ones, yeah. If the bunny rabbit and the alligator were Honto and the Indians, he was the bird shadow puppet. <laughs> A lot of mediums could do that one. That they had the same like spirits or like personalities uh-huh. that we call forth blows my mind. I want to know all about this. Like, like there, there's a day when I will write a book about it. To like, me, it just seems like. That could really hurt your credibility. Like, I guess they were thinking like, oh, I can bring forth that guy too. But it seems like what if what they said contradicted? Then it would be rationalized away. Well, I know that. I'm just saying. (laughs) Why not create your own giant African warlord thing that she did? Why not make Black Panther is all I'm saying. (laughs) Would you not want a T'Challa instead of John King? I'm just saying. Well, he was a pirate. Like a Chinese pirate? No, he just wore a Chinese hat. Oh, okay. He was not Chinese. (laughs) But yes, Wakanda forever to hell with John King. So he was a popular personality. A lot of people could do that one. Which normally would have dissuaded Helena from her interest in him. She She liked Wakanda forever. Yeah. All about that. But she had some weird shine for him. I'm not sure. And he'd been showing up for about two decades at the time that she really began interacting with him. He'd first shown up in the early 1850s to this farmer medium who lived in Ohio. And later, he would work with the famous Italian medium, Esepia Palandino, who is her own episode, I promise, one day. Um, She could supposedly make fire. Uh, He was always raucous. And (laughs) this writer calls him a phantom about town. And he loves to talk about his adventures. And he was very happy to use a Ouija board so you could have your own John King. Perfect. Everybody gets their own John King. You, you get, get a John King. King. You get a John King. Um, and he came through during automatic writing as well. For more on the idiomotor effect, <laughs> see our previous episode. And she did not like sharing spirits, but she dismissed all the other John Kings and said that one that was real was hers. Well, of course. Uh, she called him Johnny. Like, had a nickname for him. Johnny boy. Mm-hmm. And he would write notes to Henry Alcott that would mysteriously appear in his notebook that he carried in his pocket. Magic letters. Uh-huh. And he also painted pictures on satin and would show up at Helena's seances. He would write letters to her friends and would scare her servants and steal her money. Trifling. Trifling. Say, no, I don't want no scrubs. <laughs> Helena did not know that song. But anyway. Yes, she did. Scrub is the guy can't get no luck from me. Okay, so then she gets married again um, to a man named Michael Bettinelli. And she assumed that he was wealthy, but this was less than true. And when Alcott was informed that she had married this man, he assumed that she had done it, quote, in a freak of madness. Uh, Helena insisted that they were linked by karma. And besides, he said he would kill himself if she didn't marry him. So what could she do? What can you do? Now, 10 years later, the story had changed. It always does. Um, She said that a black wizard. (laughs) A what? Now, is this a black wizard or a black wizard? Like a bad 
like a an evil wizard, a malintent wizard with malintent. Of course, not Forrest Whitaker. No, but it could have also been a beast or maybe the devil himself. Something. Um, just had taken possession of her body and spoken with her tongue. And when she again regained consciousness, she found herself living in the house with a handsome young Armenian who treated her as if he were her husband. I ordered him off, but he does not go. He declares that I am his wife and that he has just been legally married to me. Married before witnesses, Olcott among them. I remember nothing. I turn to Olcott. Imagine my horror when he confirms it. He was a witness at the wedding and he signs a register. Was he? Yeah. Alcott really was there, and he really did see them get married. No, she's saying, like, I thought I dreamed the whole wedding. Uh, Because of the black Black wizard. Black wizard, or beast, or devil. Now, within 10 days, she is writing to people referring to John King as her only friend. (laughs) So the marriage is not fulfilling. (laughs) She she got to look at his checkbook. And she says that, of John King, of course, of John King, not her husband. She says he is, I am fonder of him than anything on the earth, and that he's transformed her. No, she was beginning to kind of get a sense of what she wanted to teach the world. And it was kind of to sing in perfect harmony, uh, like Coke. She felt certain that there is a secret brotherhood that had elected her to be its spokesperson and to carry the message of capital T truth. I like that capital T. Yes. It's out there. But she says that all the secrets of the universe lay hidden from a race that is ill-equipped to grasp the ungraspable. Each century, the keepers of the capital T truth seek someone to act as their agent. And in the 19th century, however unsatisfactory she might appear to others, they had chosen Helena for this exalted task. So we're beginning to get the seeds of, of theosophy. We're getting yes. a brotherhood. Yes. And that all the secrets are out there. You just have to be open to them yes. and you have to kind of know where to look. Exactly. And that's why I wasn't loving that definition earlier because it's like, it's not really, that's not really what it is. Cause it's like, you have to go to the ancient texts, but you also kind of have to read them in whichever way you want to. <laughs> right. You could cut them up into pieces and throw them in the air and they might fall down and give you a message. That's I think where the intuiting comes from. Mm, it's like, it's not yeah. necessarily like you study it's inter- it enough. But it's like the interpretation. Yes. It's it. the, it's a very intuitive yes. interpreting process. Now, the secret brotherhood at this time is the Brotherhood of Luxor. So tell me about the Brotherhood of Luxor. These are the masters. Well, right now. Right now. At this point in time, these are her masters. Mm -hmm. They're real living people, and they're in Luxor, or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, for sure. They are not just ghosties. No. And they are able to send her information yes through like astral projection basically kind of on the astral plane yes of their like consciousness yes and they can like talk to her and talk through her usually it's writing well yes i mean yeah Yeah, it's usually like automatic writing yeah she doesn't vocalize for them often it's not like a physical mediumship in that way but she never really believed that she was their servant she was like their equal, sent to build a church. Very Jesus-like. Uh, more Saint Paul, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. more, yeah. more that. I don't think Saint Paul thought he was an equal. <laughs> Elena's no saint. <laughs> so at this time, she begins to kind of question, like, what the hell is this John King pirate character doing here? 
He doesn't make sense with my other people. I'm going to have to start working on this. So she says that John and I are acquainted from old times before he began to materialize for every run-of-the-mill medium. Oh, so they're old besties. Yeah, and so like, I was John Kinging before it was cool. Right. She's so hipster. Um, she is such a fucking hipster. It drives me insane. I got him to propose to me ironically. <laughs> exactly. And she'd say, like, I, he loves me. I know it. And this time she's crediting him for saving her when she has the accident. I mean, he was a pirate. Right. Well, no, the the horse trampling accident, uh, too. That probably better. Yeah. You know, and also from the wreck and all of these other things. So he's like this invisible protector that she's known forever. Right. But then eventually he does get replaced with like more dignified seeming spirits. He of just kind of gets. She just throws them away. Yeah. She throws men and men's spirits away. Oh, she doesn't like women any better. That's true. She is a chauvinist pig. I think she just doesn't like anybody. Anyone. But then she becomes estranged from her husband. But then a wonderful turn of events. I know that's shocking. I oh. know. Oh, what could it be? No, no, no. I meant that she was estranged from her husband. Oh, no. I meant the turn of events. Yeah. Oh, well, the turn of events <laughs> is Henry Alcott, you recall? Magic letters. Begins receiving magic letters. Magic letters. Out of nowhere. Well, the first one's postmarked Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I mean, someone has to deliver it. But it looks like it could be from somewhere way cooler than Philadelphia. Ooh, <laughs> it looks very exotic. I'm sure. Philadelphia um, can be exotic. It's, it's a lot of things. It could be. It's not exotic. I've seen Rocky. Exactly. So there was a thick sheet of paper, which was green, and it was inscribed with gold ink. So someone had their stationary game on point. From the Brotherhood of Luxor, section the fifth, to Henry S. Alcott. Brother Neophyte, we greet thee. He who seeks to us finds us. Rest thy mind. Banish all foul doubt. We keep watch over our faithful soldiers. Sister Helen is a valiant, trustworthy servant. Open thy spirit to conviction. Have faith, and she will lead thee to the golden gate of truth. She neither fears sword nor fire, but her soul is sensitive to dishonor, and she hath reason to mistrust the future. Our good brother John hath verily acted rashly, but he meant well. Son of the world, if thou dost hear them both, try. I love this, like, epic letter. <laughs> I love the epic letter, and I love that they're like, yeah, they're they're trying. Just, like, give them a chance. Like, I'm surprised it doesn't go, like, also, you should give her all your money. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, Wait. There's more. There will be more. They're writing. They're like, welcome to our order. Also, excuses for John King and Helena. You know, it's not like secrets of the universe. It's like, they're good people. I should really listen to them. But whatever. Henry's, again, very gullible. So he's in hook, line, and sinker. But around this time, Helena slips and hurts her leg. And she's in his house in need of nursing lots of nursing and everything's very hard and she has no money etc but a maid confirms when he begins to get suspicious 
that Madame rose in the night and walked around on her leg, and only during the day does it become paralyzed. <laughs> she randomly British nurse. <laughs> a lot of the maids in New England at that time were Irish. Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and so he confronted her about this, and he was also upset because there had been weird lulls in his messages from the Brotherhood, and he was not liking it. And so then she and her supernatural goons intimidated him. He tells her, I want all of my messages from them verbatim et literatum. And she replies, you want too many things at once, my dear. Oh, I love this. And she's like, I'll be happy to comply, but you're going to have a hell of a rough time reading their letters without me here to translate them for you. It's very John Smith. (laughs) Now my advice to you, Henry, a friendly one. You don't fly too high. You don't poke your nose on the forbidden paths of the Golden Gate without someone to pilot you. Patience, faith, no questioning, through obedience and silence. Some godfather-ass shit. And the Brotherhood were careful to make sure that he stayed in line when they resumed correspondence. They kind of explained that Helena was a bit of a flight risk, and he needed to do everything in his power to make sure that she stayed on the right path. So this is another epic letter. Tell her you're both going to Philadelphia, and instead of that, take the tickets to New York City. Not further. Once arrived, find her a suitable apartment, and do not let one day pass without seeing her there. For if she finds herself once for a few hours with that polluted mortal... Her powers will, will suffer greatly, and your own progress might be impeded. If you succeed to bring her out before the world in her true light, not of an adept, but of intellectual writer, and devote yourself both to work together, the articles dictated to her, your fortune will be made. She must have the best intellects of the country introduced to her, she will make you acquire knowledge and fame through herself. So. She's got like a little apostle. We, Henry? Yeah. 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 Oh, he is her something. <laughs> something. He is. He's something all right. So she's very desperate. But around this time, this man named George Felt comes out of the woodwork. And he is a scholar of Egyptology. And he's familiar with hieroglyphics. And he's kind of boring a little salon to tears with his lecture until he mentions that through his study of hieroglyphics, he's been able to, you know, figure out how to conjure elementals. And they're like, elementals? He's like, you know, the common seance ghost. So what? They're like, amazing. And some say, Olcott wrote a note and passed it around. Some say, Helena did. But somebody writes a note. It's like, wouldn't it be great to have a society to study things like this? That's a great idea. And so the Theosophical Society is first formed. Hooray. Hooray. And so Theosophy means like wisdom from God, wisdom about God, knowledge about God-ish is kind of where they land. And they think that it's like the only term that's broad enough. And now we all have to awkwardly try to say it when we see it. Uh, It's a bitch. It's so hard to say. And to like add all the proper suffixes on it, it's like, I don't just try. Just 
as the brothers would say, all in capital letters. Now, Alcott was sure that the society would have its place in history. Helena wrote, Henry is counting the price of the bear's skin before the beast is slain. The chicken... Before the eggs are hatched, yeah. I think in Russia, yeah. it's so much more violent. <laughs> it's much, much scarier. Mm-hmm. But she began working on Isis Unveiled around this time, but felt had not managed to conjure a single elemental as, you know, as they were trying to study this phenomenon. Not even the tip of the tail of the tiniest nature spirit, Alcott wrote. And so the society was like not that impressed with what they were seeing so far. And Helena was not that impressed with the society. And so she really sunk her teeth into working on Isis. Now, during her lifetime, it was said that the text was way too complicated and complex to have possibly been written by a woman. Definitely written by astral projected masters from somewhere in the East. That makes a lot more sense than a woman writing this. And this is how spiritualism happens. <laughs> I swear to God. Like people See? think women are incapable of duplicity at this time. And so they believe all these female media. So we can blame toxic masculinity on for new age. Yeah, <laughs> we can. Basically wrote Isis in various states of trance. Well, of course she did. Okay. They're like, she would kind of zone out and just write for a long time and I'm like okay you are not familiar with the process of writing because that is the only way it ever happens <laughs> but whatever but she would have Alcott edit these passages which she received in trance and then translated into clumsy English and he was forced to kind of wrangle them into some kind of sense and there are different languages and handwritings and things that are used in her notes But they're hodgepodge, like almost literally, like at one point she like cut them up and threw them around the floor to try and lay them out like puzzle pieces and make sense of them. Of course. But anyway, she works on it really hard for a really long time and ends up with a thousand page book. Um, A thousand pages? Yeah, it was abridged eventually um, by an editor. But when she's doing this, she kind of starts to get the general gist. It's like through all of this. All of the writing, all of the everything. She's like, I kind of think I'm starting to get the hang of where this is going. She said, thus did revelation appear in a nutshell. The mysteries were not mysteries at all. Miracles did not exist. The caretakers of the secret doctrine, members of the Indian Brotherhood, incarnated at intervals in history to reveal mysteries of the divine wisdom. They understood the secrets of atomic energy, gravitation, transmutation of metals, extraterrestrial communication and travel, in fact, had more scientific knowledge than all modern physics, chemistry, and metallurgy combined. Their books were written in an alphabet known only to themselves, and not only did they comprehend the principles of evolution and the decline of societies, but also possessed the most exhaustive cosmogony ever known to humanity. So she's on to something. The idea of a secret brotherhood, keeper of the secrets, is something that's very popular in many occult traditions. Wait, she said brothers of India. thought they were in Luxor, in Egypt. Eh. They moved? Different brotherhood. Eh. One of the two. Whatever. All of it. Whatever works. That's what she said, but whatever. <laughs> so then she began to feel that she was being called to India because... The sources of her divine knowledge were there now. Then they began corresponding with this group in Bombay who were like working on a similar New World Order. Sorry, not 
sorry, I guess. Like, very conspiracy theory friendly, that phrase there. But they're like, y'all are basically doing the same thing that we're doing, but we're in India where the secrets are. And would you like to just join the Theosophical Society to our group? And they're like, hell yes, we would. That seems so much more legit than a bunch of white people saying it. (laughs) It's great. We got cred. And so they get their street cred. They and got then brown they, friends. They've got brown friends. And so they're going to go now to India. And she assures Alcott that the Swami of the group is actually one of the Brotherhood. Like there is currently one of the masters inhabiting him. That's perfect. And so great news. But they need money to get to India. Of course. And so... Helena begins writing all these very lurid articles for Russian publications about like salacious American subjects like divorce and abortion and feminism and et cetera. So taking a page out of her mom's book. So she's sending all these articles back to Russia, but she's not telling Alcott about it. And he's like, where'd you get that money? She's like, I materialized it. Well, that's handy. I know. Like, why don't you fucking materialize it all the time? Why have I been supporting your ass? And so she becomes an American citizen because she does not want to try to travel to India with a Russian passport because of the tensions in the region. But she becomes the first naturalized Russian woman in America. Okay. Doesn't it make sense in a weird way? Sure. And she's kind of a pilgrim. I don't think that's what they meant. (laughs) She's free to make up her own religious system. I mean, how American is that? It's as American as apple pie and Mormonism. Exactly. <laughs> and Scientology. Exactly. So she and Alcott leave for India on December 17th of 1878, and they reach England in January, and they go to stay with this American spiritualist couple, the Billings. And Mary Hollis Billings is a medium, and she has a spirit guide, which is the like spiritualist equivalent of a master that's not called a master that's probably a dead guy. Not a living person in Luxor, India, Tibet, or whatever. She has a spirit guide named Ski. And Helena was very willing to sing for her supper. And so she pronounced that Ski was a messenger of the Brotherhood. Of course. <laughs> Good I can news. Stay at your place. He's definitely a messenger. And she decided that she was going to dazzle all the prominent London spiritualists. And Ski would help and she had him deliver a message, a written message. Oh, no. To go to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum and look under a particular figure. And there would be a message waiting for them there. Was there? Yes. <gasps> it's all very mysterious. But yeah. this is the kind of antics we're getting up to at this point. Like, this is a dog and pony ship. And then we're back on the Magical Mystery Tour. Just after a brief detour to, like, meet a messenger of the Brotherhood, get some English followers. Back on the boat. Go into India. And we finally get to Bombay, and there is Chittamam, the man with which Olcott has been corresponding. And he's there to greet them, but he's tardy and gives her a very bad feeling. By the next morning, word of their presence spread through the native community and precipitated a rush of visitors. For two days, they floated along blissfully. Chintamon invited 300 people to a reception in which Helena and Henry were welcomed with garlands, limes, and rose water. And Henry felt so touched that he began to cry. They took the six-mile boat ride across the harbor to the Elephanta Caves, inspected the sculptures of Shiva's half-man, half-woman, and enjoyed themselves thoroughly at a picnic luncheon. That evening, their necks wreathed with jasmine garlands. They sat in the box of honor 
at the Elephantstein Theater for a special performance of a Hindu drama. During the intermission, they listened to complimentary welcoming speeches from the stage. When the play had not yet ended, at three in the morning, they excused themselves and departed, eyes barely open. It was as Alcott called it, unalloyed happiness. And then... The brothers came out. Chintamam. Yeah. Presents them with a bill. Hmm. <laughs> that seems about right. And Madam is sore offended. Relation sour. Look, I can't just make money apparate out of the air. What do you mean? I mean Amateur. <laughs> and so Swami is stripped of his title as one of the Brotherhood, <laughs> the Enlightened Men, the Adepts, etc. And they decide to go walk about uh, to find a house of their own and some holy men. Now, need to point out, locals thought Helena was probably a spy, and so they were followed by police a lot of the time. Of course. She rode an elephant, and Henry wrote about it. He said, she rolled about wildly, getting her fat shaken up and her breath squeezed out of her until she grew furious. (laughs) So I think that, uh, you know, dissuades any thought that they may have been. Lovers. Lovers. They were not lovers. They were very platonic in a true sense, in a very phaedrous sense of the word. But they started a publication called The Theosophist, and the first one was printed in Om the Theosophist, a monthly journal devoted to Oriental philosophy, art, literature, and occultism, conducted by H.P. Wolotsky under the auspices of the Theosophical Society. And there were some really good articles in it about Buddhism, ancient China, trigonometry, and some low-key propaganda for the Theosophical Society. I'm just throwing some trigonometry in there. Yeah, it was pretty successful. And despite their previous monetary setbacks and the monsoons and the duplicitous holy men, they began to experience a very good deal of notoriety and success in mid-1880. And so then they connected with Alfred Sennett, who would be Madam's future biographer, But he wanted her to test her abilities under proper conditions. She did not care much for this idea, and he complained that she she tossed out phenomena suddenly when people were off guard and had no chance to focus their complete attention on it. How dare she? Which I'm like, yeah, dude. So accusations about fraud were beginning to percolate, and people were beginning to question the miraculous authorship of these letters on which she had been building her reputation. The magic letters. The magic letters. So what what do we mean by magic letters? Should we talk about this here? So like, they would just appear magically. Because it's not automatic writing. Right. It's not like she sits down and in front of people writes these messages. These messages are written by an unknown hand and seem to appear like out of the air magically magically like people would find them in their coat pockets people would find them in their wallets sometimes they drop on their heads letters perfect she has her defenders Alcott decided it was completely absurd to assert that madam had written these letters and that was that for then so these letters were coming from the masters the brotherhood yes the brotherhood the masters also called mahatmas are a huge integral part of theosophy and these ideas and they are these highly evolved holy men that are somewhere (laughs) they move as alvin boyd coon said who was a theosophist the masters whom theosophy presents to us are are simply high-ranking students in life's school of experience they are members of our own evolutionary group 
not visitants from the celestial spheres. They are supermen only in that they have attained knowledge of the laws of life and mastery over its forces with which we are still struggling. And I will say that Mr. Kuhn does a far more concise job of explaining the role of the masters than Madame Blavatsky ever did. Well, he wrote later. <laughs> right. You know, as, as everything kind of gelled and solidified. And just to bring it back to how we mentioned it, you know, these were the roles that the Venusians played mm-hmm. in George Adamansky's UFO religions and the other UFO religions that were about in the 50s. The masters were from kind of a celestial plane. <laughs> and I think that's probably why there's that specific, like, and not fucking aliens. Well, this was before that. Yeah. But it was, it's like, these aren't ghosts. I think right. Saying. These aren't angels. They're not, you know, visions sent from on high. These are just highly evolved, sophisticated, real people. Uh-huh. Cool. Cool, bro. So, there is a cast of characters now. We're beginning to get a more consistent brotherhood. Mead says... That piecing together their biographies from letters, one can summarize them as follows. Somewhere in Tibet live a few men who have reached sainthood and become members of a hierarchy that govern the world. Although the exact address of the Brotherhood of the Snowy Range is not divulged, it might be Shigasa, the village south of Lhasa, near the Songpo River, where Helena stayed in 1870 in the house of Master Kuthumi's sister. The Mahatmas appear to live in a type of communal setting reminiscent of a monastery. As masters and teachers, they supervise apprentices who have resolved to devote themselves to humanity. And Kuthumi speaks of the house being full of young and innocent shalas, preparing for initiation. The masters are not cloistered, and some of them travel quite often. Kuthumi journeys to Bhutan and the mountains of Kulan. Kulan? For business consultations. That's where Iron Fist learned his, his training. I've seen the drawings of Kutumi, and he's kind of blonde, so maybe he is Iron Fist? I don't maybe know. so. Did you look at his chest? I didn't. Is there a tattoo? Next time I speak with him. He writes letters from Kashmir and Amritsar, and sends telegrams from Julim and Punjab. And on occasion, he mentions that he's just spent nine days on horseback. Ordinarily, they keep busy at home performing duties, which are referred to, but never described. Possibly, much of their time is spent in study, since they seem to be the curators of the largest and most complete library on Earth. Why Helena has chosen to prevent so few details about their daily lives is unclear. Granted, she is usually writing in a hurry, and the requisite religious research was sufficiently taxing to discourage research into details like lifestyle and diet. There is nothing in the letters to indicate that the Mahatmas were living in Tibet. For that matter, they could have been settled in Madras or London or even New York. Perhaps because of this lack of essential knowledge, the Brothers Kuthumi and Moria, or Master Moria, are not, as one might expect, Tibetans, but Indians. Kuthumi was born in Punjab, and in his youth he studied in Europe, probably in Germany, because he makes playful references to Munich Beer Hall beauties. He does not, however, speak or write in German, Punjabi, Hindi, Tibetan, and his Latin is faulty, his Sanskrit is non-existent, his French is impeccable, and his English is queer. He also has a habit of overlining his M's, which is a mannerism of Russians writing in English or French, although his letters are written in English. They sometimes falter in their use of punctuation. Spelling and grammar, for example. He inserts commas between subjects and predicates. Worse yet, he's fond of American slang. Kutumi is in semi-command of Western 
literature, science, and philosophy. He quotes Shakespeare correctly and Swift incorrectly. He has a passing acquaintance with Thackeray, Tennyson, and Dickens, and keeps au courant by reading current English novels. My knowledge of your Western science is very limited, he insists, which does not prevent him from aiming barbs at Darwin, Edison, Tyndall, and some 30 others. In personality, he is alternatively witty, stern, cheerful, spiteful, highly idealistic, petty, and downright bitchy. He is always entertaining. Now, he came about when Alfred Sennett first asked to be put in touch with a Mahatma, coot whom he responded, and he would sign the majority of the letters to Sennett, but she created Kuthumi, despite the fact that she, or got in touch with Kuthumi, whatever, despite the fact that she already had a perfectly good Mahatma, but she wanted to keep him to herself. Now, she refers to Master Moria as a childhood protector. So now he's replaced John King in that narrative. Oh, You'll poor John King. Mm-hmm. Poor little pirate ghost spirit thing. I know. <gasps> he's the Jersey Devil's friend! Well, he had to do something. <laughs> so... Whenever Kuthumi did not want to take part in correspondence with Olcott or others, Moria would be brought in as kind of like a relief writer. He was flinty, humorless, brusque, and in most respects, a totally different personality from Kuthumi. His single indulgence is pipe smoking. Pipe was a nice touch, but a mistake on Helena's part, for it was strictly forbidden to smoke in Tibet. Oops. You also think someone that had been to Tibet would, would know, know that. that. Yeah. There were others. There was Dujalkul who was disowned by his family when he became a Shayla. And then there was Kohan, who was above the masters. He did not care for Westerners. And there was Maha Kohan, who was basically like God analog, even higher than Kohan. Conspicuously, there are no women. Well, it was a brotherhood. Well, they commented on this. They would say that women lacked the power of concentration. Generally, I never trust a woman any more than I would trust an echo. And then referring to Helena, Kuthumi says, we have nothing against the old woman except that she is one. And he vacillates, yes, seriously, apparently. He vacillates between a defense of her and a criticism that's so devastating that many people believe that she would never have written those things about herself. But the misogyny had a purpose. It was to throw people off track, right? Sure. (laughs) Or some subconscious self-hate, one or the other. Well, she had this huge compunction to, like, distance herself from being a woman. I mean, like, even down to the, like, I hate dress and finery and dancing and I shove my foot in boiling water to prove it. But by saying, like, all women are stupid and then being the only woman that they communicate with, she's the best woman on earth. Of course. We all know that. Yeah. So... There is much consternation and gnashing of teeth over the next few years, but really, like, the next big turn in her life, like, the next big thing that happens is in India still. They uh, decide to put down roots in Madras on the Bay of Bengal, and so they set up, like, a formal headquarters, and it apparently is quite a fantastical place. Alcott says we thought of it as a fairy place, you know, like something out of a fairy tale. And she decides that something that needs to happen is that there needs to be like a kind of shrine thing. Um, She calls it the occult room. Okay. And so it's going to have pictures of the masters. Of course. And then she decided there should be a cabinet on the back wall, kind of like an altar. And so she has special plans drawn up and she sends it out and has it custom built. And this serves as like what some people call an astral post office. What? Is this where the magic letters come from? Well, now it is. They don't just drop out of the air for everyone. That would be very difficult. It'd take a lot of time. (laughs) 
to drop out of nowhere. So we have now a station where one can go and you write a message and you get this message back from master and it's very magic. And this is rocking and rolling, going along. People are getting Mahatma letters. Life is good. And then Olcott and Blavatsky have to go to the annual Theosophy Convention and they need to leave someone in charge of the occult room. The mailbox. The mailbox. And they say, closing the post office while we're away, boys. No one go in there. Well, some people want to have the meeting, their business meeting in there. Emma, her HBIC, won't let them in. They get in a big verbal fisticuffs. And apparently Emma's had enough of everyone's shit. And she just snaps. And she's like, Blavatsky's a fraud. What? And she's like, it's true. She writes the Mahatma letters. And there are panels in the back. And they open into her room. What? And they're like, in the back of what? And she's like, the cabinet. My husband. You know how my husband had to go build the cabinet and build the occult room? They're like, yeah. They're like, there's sliding panels on the back. And it opens into the wardrobe. No. In her room. In her room. Which was next door. Yes. (laughs) And they're like, oh my God, what's wrong with her? By her, they didn't mean Blavatsky. Of course not. They meant Emma. Uh, Of course. So Emma and her husband are sent off. They're excommunicated, thrown out. And Blavatsky hears about this and is like, what slander? What lies? How dare they? How dare they? And this balloons. This turns into a mushroom cloud of crazy. Because not only are they like threatening blackmail and court suits and all such. But now the the Society for Psychical Research in London is on the case. Oh, good. And there have been complaints about the report that was compiled by the SPR. Hodgson is the man who did it. He's an Australian expat who moved to Great Britain. And he was not a fan of Blavatsky's and kind of took the columns, which are the... Emma and her husband took them at their word about everything. And it doesn't seem like he did the most thorough investigation, but he definitely wrote up what they said, discredits her and just has a party. But he was highly motivated by the idea that he believed her to be a Russian spy. The Society for Psychical Research has said that his methods were unsound, which the theosophist take to mean it was all a lie and everything she did was real. It was a lie. Which is not what they mean, but you'll never convince the other community of that. Now, despite this, which should be an earth-shattering, career-ending shit show, she goes on. Of course. She goes on. She is ensconced in London in a manor house holding formal Saturday meet and greets with the up-and-coming intelligentsia set in London before you can even turn around good. Like the fact that she manages to resurrect herself from this is incredible to me because it's like the basis of everything. But Mormonism still exists. So who knows? Who knows? But she does, you know, continue to be a figure on the public stage, creating some form of religion. Now, one of the things that she did was, well, first of all, she eventually 
was not speaking to either Alcott or Sinan. <laughs> we were her two besties forever. Her bestie is John King. Everyone knows that. OG bestie. But she would kind of start saying that she needed a successor. She needed someone to come after her and continue the work of theosophy. Of course. She was putting that idea out there that the masters wouldn't die with her and like (laughs) that she was going to write the secret doctrine, which was another tome, like serious tome. Wasn't going to be very secret. Oh, no. She was revealing the secrets, which is a light bringer. Oh, she also had a journal called Lucifer, Lucifer for a bit. Yeah. But she really wanted to leave something that later generations could take and use to create a more standardized version of theosophy. So you mentioned that she was kind of ensconced in London and or in England and was kind of taking visitors. Mm-hmm. And you had people from all over Europe, all over the world coming in. Kind of sitting at her feet Mm -hmm. and and learning from her. People that were interested in these new ideas that were coming around. And one of these people was Alexandra David Neal. And where Madame Blavatsky created this amazing life for herself in her stories that she invented, I would venture to say... That Alexandra David Neal had the life that Blavatsky imagined that she did. It's probably fair. <laughs> because I went into reading about her thinking she was going to be a Blavatsky-like character. Mm-hmm. But she's not. She's amazing. Blavatsky's amazing too. But like, in a, oh my God, I cannot believe she did that. No, she is an amazing, amazing character. Her story is so interesting. Now, Alexandra David Neal was a Belgian-French woman that was born around Paris in 1868. Um, At the age of 15, while spending school holidays with her parents, the Belgian city of Ostenda, on the coast of West Flanders, she ran away. Did she join the circus? No, she went all the way to the Netherlands before turning back. In her 17th year, with the maxims of Stoic philosopher Epictetus in hand, She took a train to Switzerland and managed to walk across the St. Gothard Pass in the Swiss Alps all the way to Lake Maggiore in Italy. Now, a year after, she tied all of her possessions onto the handlebars of her bicycle and set off for a discovery tour of Spain. Okay, I want to be her BFF. Maybe she should be my tulpa. (laughs) Maybe so. Are you a spirit guy? So, she was a free spirit before free spirits were cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. So she studied Eastern religions at the Sorbonne. Okay. So she has her credentials. Well, this was the late 1800s. Oh, so she didn't get any credentials. She just got to audit some classes. Exactly. They wouldn't let her. Down with the patriarchy. They wouldn't let her. And now she also went to England Mm -hmm. to hone her English skills. Mm -hmm. And there she did study with Madame Blavatsky. Did she study with her or did Madame Blavatsky say, so what do you know about Eastern religions? <laughs> Something like that. I need to take notes. Hold on. <laughs> but she knew she would need English to be able to travel to the East because that was kind of the European language that many of, of course, the Indians and other people spoke because of their um, friends with <laughs> the British. One of my favorite memes of all time is from the Olympics in London where the Queen's standing there going, look at all these countries I used to own. Yes. 
But, you know, her dad was like, you need to get a real job. And she's like, okay, okay, I'll do something practical. I will study music and voice at the Royal Conservatory in Brussels and become (laughs) prima donna with the Hanoi Opera Company. Alexandra, you are sticking it to the man every which way possible, aren't you? But as she was getting tired of this, she traveled off and on for years and years with them all through Europe, all through the West, and through Northern Africa. Um, She became the artistic director of a casino in Tunis. And while there, she met and wed Philip Mucci. That's his nickname? Yeah. Neil. And that's when she becomes... David Neal. Yes, exactly. Hyphenating. Semi-stoner. I like it. Yeah. I'll tell, about, I'll tell you about stoner another day. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so he was a wealthy railroad exec, and they married when she was 36 years old. Oh, my gosh. So she had her cake and ate it, too. She reminds me a little bit of Nellie Bly. She definitely has some similarities, but also sounds a lot like Blavatsky. Oh, at her. what Blavatsky. Said she did. Yes. yes. So she'd been to India before and East briefly. Wait, wait, wait. I have the answer. She is Madame Blavatsky's tulpa. (laughs) There you go. That might be true. But 1911, she went back to India and later became the disciple of a Buddhist monk, the Gamchen of of Lashen, living and meditating in a Sikkim cave on the border with Tibet for three solid years. It's on the border because Westerners are not allowed in Tibet. Right. Still especially Western on. women. Especially. In 1912, she met the 13th Dalai Lama. Wow. In 1914, she met the young Afer Yongden in one of the monasteries, and he was 15 years old, and became her companion, and she would later adopt him. <laughs> I'll just have a Buddhist monk. Thanks. He wasn't a monk. <laughs> so in 1916, she traveled to Tibet. What? How? She snuck in. Kicked she really did it. And she met the Panchen Lama. So it's kind of, kind of second in command in a way. Uh, but on return to India, British forces expelled her for trespassing. As expected. But World War I was raging. So instead of heading back to Europe or Tunis, she traveled through Korea and Japan to continue her studies. She then decided to travel across China as its civil war began. Across 5,000 miles by mule, yak, horse, and foot. God bless her. And now she did make some stops along the way, but by 1924, they had reached the borders of Tibet, her and Yongden. Her adopted son? Yes. So she took a very circuitous route to the other border of Tibet. Yes. And she she did it kind of on purpose. She was learning. She was, you know. It's not like she was... On a pleasure cruise. Exactly. So in order to sneak in, she disguised herself as a Tibetan pilgrim, even dyeing her hair with Chinese ink (laughs) and coaling her face. Under her rags, she hid a compass, a pistol, (laughs) and a purse with money for possible ransom. Pistol packing pilgrim. (laughs) Four months later, she arrived at the holy city of Lhasa. After scaling the 19,000 foot peaks... In order to survive this, she used the Duma breathing practices to keep herself warm. Oh, we talked about that on our spontaneous human combustion episode. Exactly, and how it, it really works. It does. <laughs> There's scientific proof, so we buy it. So on seeing Potala Palace, the winter palace of the Dalai Lama since the 7th century, and the highest ancient palace in the world, 
She wrote that golden roofs glittered in the blue sky, sparks seeming to spring from their sharp upturned corners, as if the whole castle, the glory of Tibet, had been crowned with flames. Did I mention she was 55 years old? Shut up! Um, so she stayed in Lhasa for a few months until they were eventually discovered. Damn and it. the story goes many ways. She says that she was uh, already leaving. <laughs> anyway, and uh, some people say she was kicked out. Uh, she returned to France and published a book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet. Another book, My Journey to Lhasa. Did she write, publish those under her own name? Yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. And she continued to travel through the East, study and write. She did die in 1969, just before her 101st birthday. Life well lived. Let's get this woman a monument. So Blavatsky did not provide any evidence of her many travels, like no Conestoga wagon receipt from her time crossing the Rocky Mountains, no lengthy correspondence from Tibet during her sojourns. I'm assuming that because we are saying that she actually did this, there must be something. There is much more evidence that this all actually happened, or at least to some degree did. Okay. Because well, she's... The, the adopted son is one thing. Yes. He's and, kind of proof. Yes. he And he actually helped a different scholar, um, Wentz, I think, kind of translate the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Oh, very cool. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the 1927, I think, publication of it. He stuck around and contributed to the field of the study of Eastern religions. He contributed a lot to religions. it, yes. And there are lots of photos. Oh, well, huh. If only Blavatsky had had a camera. Now, not from Tibet, because she couldn't bring one with her. But lots from India. and But she also has lots of letters mm-hmm. from her travels as well. Like postmarked Tibet. Exactly. Or India. I'm just saying. Border towns, you know, things like that. It's much, much more credible a story. And, and she had the costumes. She had the garb. She had the garb. Yeah, definitely. And she also wrote these books. And okay. these books are quite insightful for the time. Okay, what do you mean by that? I mean, they're, they're pretty good. Oh, it's not like, this inferior race has decided to create their own religion. How crazy. These primitives is not that, is what you're saying? It's not at all that. Good. Like, I went into this thinking this is going to be another Blavatsky character, like I right. said, and I just came out, like, super impressed. So, you know, we started all of this, of course, talking about tulpas. Now, the earliest mention of tulpas appears in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, published in 1929. The earliest reference, like, in Western writing. Kind of. <laughs> so, she explained that tulpas were related to ideas about emanations found in Tibetan Buddhism, which she said were forms created by magic. So let's look at what she actually wrote in her book. Okay. It's actually really well written. (laughs) Tibetan mystics also affirm that adepts well-trained in concentration are capable of visualizing the forms imagined by them and can thus create any kind of phantom, men, deities, animals, inanimate objects, landscapes, and so forth. Such happenings abound in Tibetan stories. The famous epic of King Gassar of Ling, the great hero who multiplies himself. He produces phantom caravans with tents and hundreds of horses, llamas, merchants, servants, and each of them plays his part. In battles, he creates phantom armies which kill their enemies, just as well as if they were authentic warriors. All this appears to belong to the realm of fairy tales, And one may wisely assume that 99 out of 100 of these stories are purely 
mythical, yet disconcerting incidents occur. Phenomenon or witness, which it is impossible to deny. So she's saying mostly this is just a story, a narrative device. <laughs> Fine, a story. No, let's, let's name drop. But no, you're right. You're right. It's a way to explain miraculous happenings. But it does seem that it has one toe dipped in the pool of reality. And in certain instances, it can't be as easily dismissed. Exactly. Okay. So she's she's kind of playing our game here. Mm-hmm. I like it. I, like I know. I love that credulity. she's... Yeah. So some profess to see a certain analogy between these and creation of thought forms. But in fact, the process is not at all the same. So she's drawing a line that I don't know that we've drawn. No, not yet. This is a dark quote. Phantoms, as Tibetans describe them, and those that I myself have seen, do not resemble the apparitions which are said to occur during spiritual seances. In Tibet, the witness of these phenomena have not been especially invited to endeavor to produce them. There's no table upon which the company lay their hands, nor any medium in trance. Darkness is not required. Sun and open air do not keep away the phantoms. So this actually reminds me a lot of the distinction that Blavatsky drew to Vera, her sister, uh-huh. where she said there were the common spooks that make the rounds at seances, and then there were these mystical adepts that were created by the masters that you know projected astrally, whatever. Right. So maybe she had some inkling of... I, no, I don't think so, because like Blavatsky was saying they were like actual kind of projections from those people. Mm-hmm. And these talpas are separate beings. Okay. In David Neal's writing. Okay. But the line is kind of at the same place. Like one is a higher creation than the other. Right. And we'll talk about how it's a little different in Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. So right now she's just drawing a difference between the seance spirits and what's created by the Buddhist. Exactly. Okay. So some apparitions are created on purpose, either by lengthy process, a visualization of a yadam, or in the case of proficient adepts, instantaneously, or almost. In other cases, apparently the author of the phenomenon generates it unconsciously and is not even in the least aware of the apparition being seen by others. Okay, so that is more in line with what we have been talking about, like in the Mabel story. Yeah, this is those seeds. Okay. Tulpa seeds. Wait till pop culture gets a hold of them. You'll never believe what's going to come out of it. Now, she also says that expert magicians in this art can, it is said, hide their own real appearance under any illusion form they choose. So these are not the drones you're looking for. Yeah, and they can, like, kind of don this to frighten evil spirits away. This would be really handy if you were trying to guard a monastery, but were nonviolent. There you go. She says, I do not know if they succeeded in duping the demons, but they certainly do not create any illusion to human eyes. Oh, therefore, de- for frightening away demons, not people. Yes, demons, evil oh, spirits. okay. So she's, again, with the credulity saying, like, I didn't see the difference. Exactly. But maybe to demons they look different. But she does have a personal anecdote that relates that accidental creation idea. So there was this painter that she was really uh, fond of. She was fond of his works. He would create these different uh, paintings of wrathful deities. So on one day, as he approached her, she could see that he was being followed by something. Now, she wasn't sure what she was looking at, and he wasn't sure why she looked so startled. And the painter stepped towards her to ask what was the matter. 
but the figure did not follow him and just stayed in place where it had first been seen. David Neal says she pushed past the painter and reached out to touch the strange figure. I felt as if touching a soft object whose substance gave way under the slight push and the vision vanished. Now, when questioned, the painter admitted that he had been focusing and meditating on these deities prior to producing a painting. And that very day, he had spent the whole morning on the painting. So it seemed that either the deity heard him and manifested some misty tulpa, or the man's own thoughts and concentration on it had created this being. Now, this is not unheard of during the creative process. And I think that a lot of like accidental tulpas in modern iterations are linked to either painters or writers, like people who spend a lot of time concentrating on fictional characters, trying to understand them and how they would work and how they would think, et cetera, et cetera. In our doppelgangers episode, there's some of this. Right, but how would David Neal see it? Well, <laughs> there are cases of people seeing the characters. It's true. You know, like people say they see the spirit, the comic book character outside Will of... Will Eisner's character. Yeah, <laughs> around his home. Interesting. I love that. I've not heard that. For another day. Now, incited by many wonderful legends regarding the power of ancients to create talpas, a small number of llamas endeavor, in great secrecy, to succeed in that peculiar branch of esoteric lore. However, the practice is considered fraught with danger for everyone who has not reached a high mental and spiritual degree of enlightenment. So be careful what you wish for. Now, sometimes the phantom can separate itself from its maker. She said one hears of uncanny struggles that have taken place between magicians and their creatures, the former being severely hurt or even killed by the latter. Now, she does ask if we should consider these stories just stories. She says, I affirm nothing. I only, <laughs> I only relate what I have heard from people whom I have found trustworthy, but they may have deluded themselves in all sincerity. Oh, honey. Oh, honey, she's a you. <laughs> Nevertheless. Nevertheless what? Oh, you know. What is this woman that just scaled the cliffs of Tibet going to do? Make a tulpa. Of course. She's going to make a tulpa. You would, too. <laughs> Allowing for a great deal of exaggeration and sensational addition, I could hardly deny the possibility of visualizing and animating a tulpa. Besides having had few opportunities of seeing thought forms, my habitual incredulity led me to make experiments for myself, and my efforts were attained with some success. Alexandra, what are you up to? In order to avoid being influenced by the forms of the Lamist deities, which I saw daily around me in paintings and images, I chose for my experiment a most insignificant character, a monk, short and fat, of an innocent and jolly type. <laughs> okay. What's not going to hurt anyone, she said. So she shuts herself away and starts working on this for months and months. Just after a few months, the phantom monk was formed. His form grew gradually, fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants and tents. Now the monk included himself in the party. And though I lived in the open riding on horseback for miles each day, the illusion persisted. Hmm. I saw the fat trappist. Now and then, it was not necessary for me to think of him to make him appear. He performed various actions of the kind that are natural to travelers and that I had not commanded. So he like walked and looked around and, and did kind of normal things the rest of his party would do. Okay. 
She says, the illusion was mostly visual, but sometimes I felt as if a robe were lightly rubbing against me. And once a hand seemed to touch my shoulder. Oh, no. (laughs) The features which I had imagined when building my phantom gradually underwent a change. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped my control. Ah, I don't like it. (laughs) I ought to let the phenomenon follow its course. But the presence of that unwanted companion began to prove trying to my nerves. It turned into a day nightmare. So she decides that she is going to dissolve it. Okay, how do you do that? Well, she had to do kind of the same kind of concentration and meditation on it. And she spent six months working on it to make it go away. Wow. Before her trip to Lhasa. So she didn't want to bring it with her to the, to the holy city. Mm-hmm. She even raises the possibility that her experience was illusory, saying, I may have created my own hallucination. I mean, that's within the realm of the possible, I would say. So you could say that her monk is very similar to the black monk. The black monk. This is from the story by Anton Chekhov, the black monk in 1894. And in this, a scholar named Andy Kovren sees an apparition of the sinister black monk. And he's not sure whether he's imagining it, whether he's gone mad and he's seeing some kind of delusion, or if this monk has an independent existence. Now, they're both described in similar ways. Both kind of have the sly, kind of malicious effect. And a creepy trickster. So Chekhov's black monk floated 20 feet beyond him and looked around Kovren and nodded to him with a friendly face but a sly smile. But what a pale, fearfully pale, thin face. And you remember that she said she had made a chubby monk and this one was looking rather lean, which I'm wondering if she had ordered him to eat and drink if he would have been happier. Good point. You never know. But it's an interesting, interesting thought, interesting idea. So, you know, we keep saying that tulpas are really more closely related to theosophy and these ideas of thought forms. So, what is a thought form? Natural question. So, and you mean the Western idea? Of yes, the theosophical idea. Okay. So, the word is first used in that 1927 translation, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That I mentioned. But Theosophus had been discussing the idea of thought forms for a while. First in an article in Lucifer. (laughs) Yeah, Madam picked that one just to agitate people, I swear to God. But really gained a lot of hold whenever Annie Besant started writing about it. And she ascended to the throne in the Theosophical movement after Blavatsky had descended from the throne. So she initially defined it as a mental image created or molded by the mind out of the subtle matter of the higher psychic plane. Now, she originally claimed the idea had a kind of physical existence, but could only be seen by special people such as clairvoyants or hypnotized patients. And that thoughts had consequences because there was a kind of subtle matter that attracted or repelled other subtle forces. And everyone was creating thought forms all the time. And you experience these effects as a result of either these wholesome or unwholesome thought forms that one may be projecting. So this is almost like an aura. It is. It is. Oh, okay. It, it is an aura. <laughs> it, it basically is. Now, a shift occurred in Besson's 1895 article, Karma, where she introduced these ensouled thought forms. Souls now. 
Uh, well, they're related to the elementals. <laughs> the spooks. No, the elementals. No, the elementals are the spooks. Oh, they are. oh you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That Blavatsky and you know our Egyptologists were discovering. Our Egyptologists could not make even the tip of the tail of the tiniest nature spirit, I will remind you. That's true. That's true. So she said the elemental enters into the thought form, playing to it the part of a soul, and thus an independent entity is made in the astral world. So this is John King. Could be. Yeah. Now she said that elementals were drawn to positive thoughts while destructive ones were attracted to negative thoughts, such that angels and demons of our creating throng around us on every side. This is almost sounding like Scientology. (laughs) (laughs) Or Christianity. Uh, Yeah, that too. So especially powerful entities were created collectively. When a man sends out a thought form, it not only keeps up a magnetic link with him, but is drawn toward other thought forms of a similar type. And these congregating together on the astral plane form a good or evil force, as the case may be. This is a very basic interpretation of like sympathetic magic, like attracts like. Uh, but this embodies a collective entity. Oh, so this is like everybody's bad dudes that you're making, bad thought form dudes that you're making gang up and become the astral jets and snap. Or sure, <laughs> sure, definitely. And she kept writing about it in Lucifer mm-hmm. that these clairvoyant theosophists were starting to visualize people's thought forms fun you know they had some awesome parties i'm just saying opium hashish thought forms well yeah i'd be seeing some thought forms too so she published a book with cw ledbetter oh no he definitely was a major force in the theosophical society after blavatsky you know he was kicked out because he was encouraging um uh, could you call it sex magic Boys masturbating. Oh, <laughs> yes. That is indeed sex magic. And that's how Aleister Crowley got kicked out of the Order of the Golden Dawn. It's the theme. So don't tell people to masturbate if you want to stay in your cult. Or religion. Or religion. Or job. <laughs> job. Just don't. Just, you know what? The only person you should be telling to masturbate is yourself. <laughs> or your sub. <laughs> so this book was published in 1901. Like you said, it sounds a lot like Auras, because it is a lot like Auras. The book even includes a color chart. Fine, I bet that's still used today. Oh, no, it definitely. So a few examples, like black as hatred and malice, red, anger. Oh, it's the same as the mood rings. (laughs) (laughs) Green, adaptability, etc. Is blue happiness? I'm not sure. My mood ring was always blue, so I knew it was broken. (laughs) Definitely broken. So my favorite crystal shop in Austin had a photo booth. You could go in and get your aura photographed. Should have done it. I never did it. I was like, maybe one day. And then we moved. And that's a sad story. I'm sure I'll happen across one again in my travels. So she felt that these thought forms were projected from the mental and desire bodies of the self. So it's kind of this Tibetan idea we'll get to. In the book are lots of images. Her thought forms book. Yes. They hired some artists. Cool. And they described to them the thought forms, the colors and the shapes and their interaction, and they painted them. Which is essentially how the Rider Waite deck came to be. Tarot cards. Rider was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, kind of head honcho, and he wanted some tarot cards made up. And so he contracted with a black female artist. What? 
Last name Wait, which is why it's now the writer hyphenate Wait deck because she finally got I to be included. Some crab. Yeah, and it's very much they they've gone back and tried to resurrect her legacy because it was brushed over um, when the cards were first popularized. And so now, if you order a writer Wait deck from anywhere, even Walmart, you'll get a card with her picture on it and some information about her, and you should read it. Because it's cool. very informative and interesting. She was a very cool lady. So these images, she insisted, were not imaginary forms prepared as some dreamer thinks that they ought to appear. They are representations of forms actually observed as thrown off by ordinary men and women. So one example is a few different thought form images that they saw when there was a terrible accident at sea. And all of these thought forms were seen simultaneously. Arranged exactly as represented, though in the midst of indescribable confusion. They are instructive as showing how different people are affected by sudden and serious danger. One form shows nothing but an eruption of the livid gray of fear, rising out of a bias of utter selfishness. Unfortunately, there are many such as this. The shattered appearance of the thought form shows the violence and completeness of the explosion, which in turn indicates that the whole soul of that person was possessed with blind, frantic terror, and that the overpowering sense of personal danger excluded for the time every higher feeling. So, not to go all tarot on you again, but I will. If you've ever seen Crowley's deck or the deck of Toth, the images presented in this book are very reminiscent of that, and I'm not sure chicken egg there. Yeah. Because that deck was worked on for so long. Another very interesting story. Maybe we'll do a History of Tarot episode one day. We're starting to threaten that like the Book of Zion episode. (laughs) (laughs) One day. One day. I don't mean to. It's just that it comes up so often. But they're kind of lineless shapes with vibrant colors that bleed into one another. And they have like very fractal, um, geometric looks to them. Yes, geometric is very good word for them and they repeat and kind of fall into one axis or another like they kind of have like almost a wave-like quality to them um but they're not representational most of the time no 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 because they represent your feelings oh here's a way to think of them (laughs) what's that uh kandinsky he was greatly influenced by this book and so his Art kind of has the feel of thought forms. Yes, and many of those early, early, early modern surrealist artists were interested in theosophy, of course. Who isn't? And were reading this very popular book and seeing these different drawings and paintings of thought forms and were very inspired by them. So this is actually the start of modern art, too. (laughs) Look at that. They accidentally thought up modern art. Hell of a thought form. Still around. So, of course, Bassan's ideas spread wildly through European occult and esoteric circles. Uh, By 1903, Bertram Kitely, an English theosophist, was suggesting that reports of ghosts, all of them, might actually just be thought forms rather than spirits of the dead. They're big on saying ghosts are not ghosts. They're just mental projections in one form or another in early psychical research. Um, You'll see them written up as like electric currents, residual energy, all, you know, like it's, but it's very much like, it's not really a dead person. Oh, hypnosis. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's all just as crazy, but (laughs) definitely not a dead person. Now the unfortunate called such entities, artificial elementals, 
Well, that's kind of what you're saying. I think that's interesting. And that they were distinguished from thought forms by the fact that once formulated by the creative mind of the magician, this is kind of referencing tulpas, they possessed a distinct and independent life of her own. So in 1930, she described how her rage at someone who had wronged her caused her to accidentally create a sentient thought form she termed a werewolf. Whoopsie doopsie. This ectoplasmic creature described as a Frankenstein's monster. And eventually she was forced to draw the entity back into herself before it could cause any harm. A werewolf, huh? Ectoplasmic werewolf. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, so now we've gotten way off from Tibet. Yes. We're <laughs> it in... It keeps happening, right? Yeah, we have fully just said that. It's a lot of reading. I'd rather just make it up as I go along. This seems to be a theme here. <laughs> it kind of does. So... The idea of thought farms later kind of became, in a way, amalgamated with what David Neal called tulpas. Okay. Because she even specifically says in the book... They're not thought forms. They're not thought forms. (laughs) So she was talking about these emanations in Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism. So Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism is a very specific form of Buddhism. Okay. It's not the same that you're going to see in China. It's not the same that you're going to see in India. It's not the same we're going to see in other areas in the East, you know, unless they are practicing this specific form of Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. It's a denomination. Yeah, you can call it that. So these are known as spralpas. So the Tibetan word spralpa is generally used to refer to this emanation or magical projection that can be sent forth by a Buddha, which is... The highest up there is. Right, someone that has reached nirvana, total enlightenment. A bodhisattva... Who is someone that is basically a Buddha. But, but has rejected Nirvana. And has decided to stay around and help people. Okay. Or even really high Lamist. Okay. But not just dude. Not really, yeah. So in Mahayana Buddhism, Buddhas and sometimes Bodhisattvas possess three bodies or forms. You have your cosmic truth body, an enjoyment body, and an emanation body. And that's where they can manifest into the physical world. Holy cow, this is so much like Young. It is kind of blowing my mind. Right? (laughs) Young loves him some theosophy. He read that shit. He loved Eastern religions. I mean, I have no doubt. And I do think that there is sort of a reflection there of the idea of the persona and the shadow self and the all of it. So now, Nwang Thakmi, who is an archivist for the University of Virginia Tibetan Manuscript Collection, kind of elaborated on what these Tibetan words meant and like what they were used for. Saying that there were different versions of sprawl. You you can add on that word to change its meaning. Okay. Um, So you can have this like sprawl rudzus, which is like a fake one that can be linked with like a magician. Okay. And you can have the spola, which would be the one that is attached to like a god that could manifest by actually temporarily possessing individuals. Okay. Now he emphasizes that spropas were never thought of as arising from sheer thought or belief, but resulted from either a magician's craft or a non-corporeal spirit or a Buddha, which would be your spropa. Now these spropas are closely linked with talkas. Okay. 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 If not synonymous, if not, they're used interchangeably. But should they be? Yeah, you can. You can, definitely. So, Tulk is the name commonly given to a reincarnate Lama. 
So high llamas and accomplished yogis can consciously decide when they will die, as well as how and whether they will take rebirth in order to continue to help beings. So this lineage of a tolka within a person, this lineage of like a deceased master, can be centuries long. Okay, but this is not necessarily soul reincarnation. It is not. Because they don't necessarily believe in the concept of a permanent soul because they're egoless. Exactly. It's very important. This is not like Hindi reincarnation. It is just kind of like an impression. Is it their collected wisdom? Is it Some sort of it of, is that. So they're able to emanate or send out to their chosen talka, or is it the talka that's sent out? The talka is what is sent out. Okay, so they send out their talka to their chosen successor. Yes. And by contact with the talka of the master, mm-hmm. they are able to glean from it some of their wisdom and experience and yes. sort of give them a leg up on that whole enlightenment thing. Right. Okay. And, of course, the most famous of famous talkas. Oh, the Dalai Lama. Of course, the Dalai Lama. So, from the Dalai Lama's website. <laughs> I love that the I Dalai Lama has funny, a website. It is. <laughs> I love so, it. His Holiness is considered to be the present incarnation of the previous 13 Dalai Lamas of Tibet, the first being born in 1391, who are in turn considered to be manifestations of Chenrezig, the Bodhisattva of Compassion and Holder of the White Lotus. So he's also linked to kind of the creation of Tibet. He is, I don't want to say he's like their national god, but he's very closely linked. Like the local saint, like the patron saint of an area almost. Um, And fun fact, mm -hmm. Madame Blavatsky began referring to herself as the White Lotus. Oh, I'm sure she did. Uh, And so in fact, he is the 74th in a lineage that is traced back to a Brahmin boy who lived in the time of Sakyamuni. Now, the Dalai Lama said, I'm often asked whether I truly believe this. The answer is not simple to give. But at 56 years old, when I consider my experience during this present life and giving my Buddhist beliefs, I have no difficulty accepting that I am spiritually connected both to the 13 previous Dalai Lamas, to Chenrezig, and to the Buddha himself. I love Buddhism. I, apparently, I especially love Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> like, I really, I just think this is such a beautiful idea. So, as we can see, you know, the ideas that are in Tibetan Buddhism are very different than the ideas of what we think of as like a tulpa in our Western kind of almost pop paranormal ideas. Mm-hmm. But, but there are some things in Buddhism especially Tibetan Buddhism, they're a little more closely linked to what we think of as a tulpa. And David Neal actually mentions them in her book. I mean, she has a section on them earlier in the book and then mentions this practice again when she's talking about tulpas. Like about her monk? Well, when she's talking about it in general. Okay. And so it's something called a yadam. What is that? So (laughs) in Tibetan Tantric Buddhism, one can kind of call upon as they're meditating a yadam or a mind-bound meditational deity. And in a way, they're trying to, first they just try to visualize it, something to focus on mm-hmm. while meditating. And then they try to bring its you know, essence up. And then they even try to kind of connect with it on a mental level in order to you know, gain some enlightenment from this deity. 
So this is very reminiscent of something in the West that you'll see in a lot of New Age text, and that's mm-hmm. spirit guides. Yes. So if you pick up any book on like opening your third eye or aligning your chakras or being in touch with your clairvoyant self, any such of these books, Mm -hmm. you will see like one of the sections is invariably going to be on spirit guides and they can be anything and they kind of just come out of nowhere when you're in your meditation or you're opening yourself up to the ether, the positive ether in the world. And You know, I've read about people who have like elves or sometimes they have talking animals or sometimes it's just a person or whatever. But it's someone that when you are opening yourself up to this kind of experience, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you tend to have a guide that sees you through all of your endeavors. And I've always thought of them as just a way for you to sort of put this experience into words, like something that transcends normal interactions, like give it a voice, like kind of almost keep track of what you're learning in a way that you can understand by having a talking bear say it to you or whatever you are giving it voice and allowing yourself to absorb the information in a way that you can understand. Mm -hmm. But it's something that's really echoed in new age in a, under a different name. So when you're reading, as you will, I'm sure all of you big readers out there, and you come across spirit guides, you might like to reflect on the concept of Yadam. Yes. They're, you know, these meditation deities, this tutelary deities. Yes. And so, I mean, the reason (laughs) that they're so similar is because theosophy, which later, you know, just spread into any kind of esotericism or cultism, draws a lot from the ideas of theosophist and then became what we call New Age spiritualism Mm. or there are very strong ties to it. It's all related to what happened back with Blavatsky and Basant and uh, David Neal all traveling back and forth to India and, and studying these kind of ancient texts and this kind of weird cross-pollination <laughs> between the two because they're not just like making it up. <laughs> they are taking the ideas from the East and... Putting them in a Western frame. Just weirdly mixing it. Yeah, but... So without a doubt, this has been highly influential in the world. Even if you've never heard of theosophy, <laughs> you've heard of auras, you've heard of spirit guides, you've heard of tarot and the golden dawn and everything that came after it. But back to Talpas, you know, David Neal introduces the notion that emanations can be created unintentionally or through collective belief, which is not precedent in Tibetan Buddhism is very closely linked to our thought forms and theosophic ideas. So David Neal ends her book this way. I earnestly wish that my account may awaken in some scientist more qualified than myself for such work, the desire to undertake serious investigations of the phenomenon, which I have briefly mentioned in this book. Psychic research may be guided by the same spirit as any scientific study. The discoveries which can be made in that field have nothing of supernatural, nothing which may justify the superstitious belief and ramblings in which some have indulged regarding the matter. On the contrary, such research may help to elucidate the mechanism of so-called miracles, and once explained, the miracle 
is no more a miracle. Well, <laughs> would you like to meet some scientist who was awakened to the possibility of scientifically studying the mechanism by which this was awakened? So do they do that like after reading her book a year or two later? They do it in the 70s. <laughs> in Canada. What? <laughs> it's far too nice a place for tulpas. So, in the 60s and 70s, there lived a couple who was born in England, but moved to Canada to do some science stuff with some new age stuff. Because we have our big spiritualist slash psychical research phase in the 1890s to 1920s. And then again, we have the kind of dawn of parapsychology departments springing up at colleges all around North America. You mean the post-hippie stage? The post-hippie era, dude. Could just blame George Harrison. We really can. For so much. It's all his fault. For so much good music. <laughs> I love George Harrison. He's my favorite Beatle, and I'll fight anyone who says otherwise. I don't uh, think he would approve of that. Well, you know, I'm fighting for his honor. I'm just his angry little tulpa. So there was this researcher named A.R.G. Owen, who believed that he had put his finger on the cause of spontaneous poltergeistry, as he would call it. Poltergeistry? Yes. Wasn't Blavatsky making some poltergeists? Possibly. Now, he says that he believed that poltergeist cases were the result of a person's subconscious mind sending out signals into their environment. These signals would then manipulate objects and move them. Upon further investigation, he theorized that most poltergeist cases tend to center around a child or teenager. It was theorized that the hormonal changes during puberty and emotional turmoil that caused created a situation in the mind that was conducive to creating poltergeist activity. And that's pretty much what we think of as a poltergeist today. Yes, and he was on the cutting edge of that idea. Like He actually kind of popularized that idea. There were other scientists who were kind of concurrently pulling from the same body of work that he was. I don't know if he can be credited with defining the modern poltergeist solely, but he was definitely at the forefront of that field. He published the book, Can We Explain Poltergeist, in 1964. And it was based on the case of the Saatchi poltergeist that manifested in an 11-year-old Scottish schoolgirl. Now, he had to concede that there was some objective reality of poltergeist phenomenon beyond all reasonable doubt. But then he conducted another investigation with the Cambridgeshire schoolboy Matthew Manning beginning in 1966. And he said that eventually Manning learned to control the manifestations of psychic force. A parapsychologist wrote later, William J. Roll was his name, following different trails, George and I have been led to the same conclusion. Poltergeistry, his colorful term, is an expression of our inner tension in persons at the center of turmoil. What the mechanism for transforming psychological tension into physical energy displayed by percussive sounds and moving objects remains to be resolved. In any case, it seems clear that all poltergeistry is a manifestation of corporeal rather than incorporeal spirits. In other words, psychokinesis, the capacity of individuals to affect material objects without tangible contact. Describing the poltergeist in terms of psychokinesis is a way of saying that the creature belongs to a larger species. The most celebrated member of the species is Philip. The ghost created by Iris Owen and seven other members of the Toronto Society for Psychical Research. I'm sorry, what? Oh, Philip. Who's who's Philip? Oh, Philip is a ghost. I mean, you just said he was created by... Yes. Did they kill somebody? No. They killed a child. No! Satanic. They're Canadian! Rich, oh, you're right. There were cases. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so some kind of what they do? How they create so Mr. a Roll, ghost besides killing somebody? They did not. So, Mr. Roll, Doctor Roll, says the Philip phenomena were not the dry deviations from chance seen in the common run of PK tests, but a lively poltergeistery. Such loud thumps and spontaneous flickerings of light bulbs and violent movements of the table. Nevertheless, many of the incidents occurred under conditions where ordinary explanations could be ruled out. Judged by Philip, the poltergeist can be domesticated. The Philip case stands out because there is no PK agent. At least not in the usual sense of the word. So, like, there's no, like, hormonal teenager. Correct. He says, but when four or more together could subconsciously share each other's stress and then release it, poltergeist phenomena are encouraged. So the group as a whole had to be present to create the phenomena. And they needed to have, like, a complete rapport. They all needed to kind of have a, a group bond and share an interest in creating the phenomena. Okay, so how the hell do they do this? So, naturally, the idea of PK, or... Psychokinesis. Right, being responsible for poltergeist activity, created the question, if some of the unexplained phenomena produced during seances at spiritualist events might just be manifestations of PK. And Houdini would say, humbug! Mm -hmm. Have we told everybody that we bought a Houdini key? (laughs) I think we may have. I bought a Houdini key and it's in a little lighted shadow box on my wall next to a framed poster. It's amazing. But they wondered if the group collective might produce enough psychic energy to replicate the wrappings and the manifestations of spirits that were seen at these seances. Because there's no way that many people were crazy. Is there? Well, yeah. But I mean, it sounds like they were successful. We wouldn't be talking about it. They were. Now, that originally they wanted to conjure the image of Philip, and that was not so successful. But let me tell you how they went about it, because it was a lengthy process. So, it was essential to their purpose that Philip be a totally fictitious character, not merely a figment of the imagination, but clearly and obviously so, with a biography full of historical errors. Their ghost would never have existed, written in the foreword to Conjuring Philip by A.R.G. Owen. So they were like, we are 100% depending on whole cloth. Mm-hmm. We're going to purposefully put errors in so that we can't accidentally summon a spirit. Right. <laughs> I love it. We don't want to screw up and accidentally get a ghost. We're making our own. I mean, these are proper test conditions. He is a scientist. I like it. <laughs> so they created Philip Aylesford, and he lived during the 1600s, during the time of Cromwell. But he was loyal to the king, and he lived in Diddington Manor. And he married a woman called Dorothea, but she refused to have children with him. And one day, while out walking the grounds, he happened on a gypsy encampment. Oh, no. On the edge of his estate. And he met a young woman named Margot. She was beautiful with dark hair, and he fell in love with her and moved her into his gatehouse. Then Dorothea found out and had her burned at the stake for being a witch. So Philip jumped off the battlements of Diddington Manor in despair. And this was before he was even 30 years old. So a drawing was made of the character, and then the group made up more details and studied the time in which he lived. And they s- said that they set out on trying to create a group or shared hallucination. But they weren't able to get a physical like or like a visual hallucination. No, that's what they wanted. You know what I, I imagine the story creating? You know that game you play when you were a kid? Where you'd start and you'd say a sentence, mm-hmm. and the next player's going to say a sentence. So you'd be like, I was out camping when I... 
heard a noise just beyond the edge of the clearing. I turned around to see a bright light, and then... It became fiery in the sky, growing closer and closer. And I was very scared, and I called my mom, and then... The light was right in my face, and I realized it was just a flashlight being held by... Ed and Lorraine Warren. (laughs) Who told me that I was clearly possessed by demons. Demons! Demons! (laughs) Call back. But sadly, they were not involved in this case. No, but these kind of are the Canadian Ed and Lorraine. Though they're not Uh, Catholic. And they're a little more scientific. So they wanted to see Philip. He's not showing up. And they, but they formed this eight-member group, and though they were disappointed that he never appeared, they began getting raps, like knocks. And it's noted that when the group in, was aware of the answer, like, did you love Dorothea, and they were expecting to hear no, they would get a louder rap than they're like, do you like cats or dogs? And they don't know the answer. Ah, uh, interesting. Now, they did do a an auditory analysis of the recorded raps. Really? And they do have a completely different sound envelope than anything the group could produce. They seem to emanate from within the table. Within the table. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Because it's done under test conditions. It's done by scientists who specialize in this field, like outsourced to them. So Iris stated... We clearly understand that we have proved that no spirit is behind the communications. The messages are from the group subconscious, but there is a physical force that we need to know more about. It was recreated. Another Canadian group created Lilith, who is a French-Canadian woman who had gone to France during World War II to join the resistance. This was successful as well, and it's been created at various parapsychology departments in North America and Australia, um, there was notably one named Skippy, which is a young girl conjured in Australia. A French group of students from Quebec created Sebastian, a medieval alchemist, and Axel, a man from the future. And at one point, the Toronto group conducted a seance with the French students, and the resulting incorporeal conversation was said to be rather amusing. And around Christmas one year, they were conducting a seance. They made Santa. I'm not kidding. That's Bullshit. totally true. <laughs> They're like, is it Philip? And they weren't like getting any response. They're like, is it Lilith? And they didn't get any response. They're like, one person's like, is it Santa? And then they hear a ho, ho, ho. Well, it just got table wrappings, but it was quite funny. Ho, ho, jingle bells outside. (laughs) But yeah, they made Santa. So what was their excuse for this? What was their scientific conclusion? Well, they believe they were creating PK manifestations based on the shared hallucination of the group. So psychokinesis by combined psychic energy. Right. They spent like a year kind of meditating on his biography before they ever began these experiments. And they met once a week, every week. I mean, this is very interesting. <laughs> oh, it's filmed. You can see it online. You can. They turned the table upside down with a flat part touching a carpeted floor and still got wraps. Like where there's no possibility that somebody's hitting the table from yeah, underneath. Their hands or feet or yeah. anything. It's really interesting. So if it's not all a hoax, it's extremely interesting. Well, this guy was pretty well credentialed. So there's a poem written in the book, Conjuring Up the Owens, for the two of them, uh, Iris and ARG. Their group produced a handsome ghost. He was a comely showman. He could not resist the call of George and Iris Owen. They blazed some new horizons, gave pyramid power a heist, 
and recorded raps and noises, but did it without the geist. Nice. I like it. So they were not into all the new age stuff. Like when pyramids became a thing for a hot minute, they wrote some scathing reports on how silly that was. But they did work with New Horizons, which was a Canadian journal dedicated to parapsychological phenomena. So you're saying you're trying to tell me the Owens are not just some kook ghost hunters. Right. Dude, bro. Dude, bro. They're not kook ghost hunters. I have here his CV. (laughs) So he was a mathematician, geneticist, university lecturer. He had a PhD in mathematical genetics, and he was involved with the invention of radar. He wrote about 40 scientific papers in the fields of mathematics, statistics, genetics, and population theory. And they were published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, Heredity, Biometrics, Biometrica, and Nature. Wow, that's very impressive. And so once they moved to Canada, he worked with New Horizons for a bit to promote research on the frontiers of science and disseminate information. Now, Iris was born in England as well, and she was a registered nurse, eventually managed a hostel for homeless girls, and started a mental welfare association in England. So they were not just layabouts. (laughs) They were not members of a cult. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, they were pretty well credentialed, as I said. So in one of his final lectures called Parapsychology, Methods, and Miracles, given in 1993 in Toronto, ARG discusses the significance of Philip in regard to the scientific field. And he says that he believed what he was finding about poltergeist to be true, otherwise known as RSPK, or random spontaneous psychokinesis. But then he notes that critics came forward with papers like this one titled Unrepeatability, parapsychology's only finding. Ooh, sick science burn. Right? And he's like, you know, you're right. And that's when he says, by then we were inspired by example of the late Ken Batchelor in England to carry out another repeatable experiment in PK, namely table wrapping experiments. Besides being performed in full light, the originality of this experiment consisted of being founded on the idea of imaginary communicators, like Philip, whose persona and biography were defined in advance to obviate a spirit hypothesis. I should hasten to say we had nothing against spirits, as Bill Roll once said. We will accept spirits at 70% proof. However, we did not want them in our experiment, whose subject matter was different. Credit for the concept of running the Philip experiment over a period of seven years is actually due my wife, Iris, even though I am personally quite unjustly praised for it. The merit of the experiment was to exhibit that PK was both voluntary and repeatable. In the last year or so of the experiment, one difficulty of this field that we soon encounter is the boggle threshold effect. Many poltergeist cases involve kinds of phenomena that one soon comes to accept. The movement of objects, the production of sounds, in a large proportion of RSPK cases, things happen that cause the mind to boggle. Among things that transcend many people's boggle threshold are such occurrences as luminosities, light flashing, ignition of fires. Some also boggle at the very odd phenomena such as pencils that write on walls, or paper, or both in the seance room. I must confess that in popular talks, I have tended to omit the more unusual happenings as a stumbling block on the way to belief. Actually, the effect of some 30 years or so of relatively close acquaintance with PK steadily raised my boggle threshold. I could say that perhaps I am deboggled, in rather the sense of being degaused. It is fact the more well evidenced 
parallel case one reads about, the higher one's boggle threshold becomes. So you're saying, I've seen a lot of shit. And now I believe a lot of shit. <laughs> but I understand that y'all can't believe all this shit. Because <laughs> you not deboggled. You ain't woke. Spiritually woke. Spiritualistly woke. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is interesting that these ideas that are brought forth by the Philip experiments have still kind of stuck around. This idea that we can kind of create our own spirits. And now those ideas have been tied to that word. Tulpa. And so there's actually an active group of Tulpamancers online. And if you are one, please tell us all about it. We want to know. So they try to conjure their own personal Tulpas. So the idea actually really snowballed. In 2012, when bronies decided to create tulpas of their favorite characters. I'm sorry, you're going to have to define that term. No, you are. Bronies, bros who are obsessed with ponies, namely my little pony. Friendship is magic. It is. I so love my little pony. (laughs) So it wasn't long before Tulpamancy also started to attract manga and fantasy fans. And the Reddit forum has thousands and thousands of members. No, really? Yeah. So one researcher, Dr. Vassier, did a study on tulpamancers. Now he said that tulpas are understood as mental constructs that have achieved sentience. Now he said that nearly 40% of his respondents reported that their tulpas felt as real as a physical person, while half described them as somewhat real and distinct from their own thoughts. Now he said that tulpamancers' happiness levels were assessed through a variety of qualitative interview tools. And the results suggest that the experience of tulpamancy has an overwhelmingly beneficial impact on their general happiness. Really? Yeah. Cool. Now, for some, it's just it's just companionship. That can add to anyone's general happiness. Well, I mean, as a kid, I had imaginary friends. Yeah. I mean, like, a lot of kids do. And actually, like, from a medical standpoint, like a kid having an imaginary friend at the right age, it's not like... You know, giving command hallucinations is <laughs> is perfectly fine. You would not do anything with that. Do you want to know who my imaginary friends were? I mean, I know. Do they want to know that your imaginary friends were cowboys from Lonesome Dove? That's true. My mom called me the other day and was like, Daddy and I watched Lonesome Dove on TV. We thought of you. So sweet. <laughs> now, one person named Elle said, my motivation for having a tulpa was the same as there is for having any other kind of friend. Someone who knows everything about you, but still loves you. Who knows not just the outer portion, but the deep inside, too. So, are these relegated to, like, pre-existing characters, or do people kind of create their own? Or? Oh, no, they definitely create their own. Like, for one example, a guy just decided to create a fox. Fox Mulder? No. <laughs> So he spent months meditating. He would set an hour and a half aside each day. He's in the first 40 minutes just kind of relaxing and clearing his mind. And then he visualized a fox. And after four weeks, he started to feel the fox's presence and have feelings he thought were the fox's. And then finally, after a chemistry exam, he felt that the fox spoke to him. He said, I heard clear as day. Well, how'd you do? How'd he do? Okay. <laughs> For a while, he was intensely involved with this fox. And said it felt more wonderful than falling in love with a girl. Then he stopped spending all the time meditating and the fox kind of you know, went away. And sometimes the fox will come back in times of stress to calm him down. 
I mean, it is hard for me to imagine how one gets started sort of talking to this invisible audience every week, you know, or every day. You know, like, how do you make the decision to sit down and just spill all your thoughts to people you can't even see? That's a great idea. What do you think you've been doing? <laughs> oh, my God. I've been talking to an imaginary audience that I can't even see. Yeah. So, I again, maybe the need is very real. Now, the idea of having these invisible agents, we keep kind of talking about this, this concept. And it's something that's really integral to our psyche. Mm-hmm. So some evolutionary biologists will point to the need to interpret ambiguous noises in the dark at night as a predator, as a very beneficial trait. But now we no longer worry about these leopards waiting in the treetops. We worry about these more inner problems. It could be called like spiritual problems or psychological problems, anxiety, everyday life, friends, companionship. So by giving them voice, by giving them agency, or giving ourselves a way to interact with those internal struggles, we're kind of assigning and personifying them. Yeah. And interacting with them as a way of working out our, our internal struggle. Yeah, or just personifying a part of your psyche and allowing you to, you know, maybe even it allowing you to talk to it, you know, just one or the other, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe it's saving you from a shipwreck. John King, OG. <laughs> so I think whatever need the tulpa, the thought form, fills is very real. I agree. I, I think that it's actually a fairly normal way of dealing with it. You wouldn't call this a hallucination if you sat around and wished for it every day. Exactly. But it's some way, like I said, to externalize this internal strife you feel. It's some way to, to get someone involved or something involved in your life that allows you to better yourself. Or even just provide a comforting presence. You know, you can extrapolate this so far. You know, this can go from talpas and thought forms and meditational deities to gods and angels. Saints. And saints and spiritual protectors and spirit guides. And maybe even just someone to ask you how you did on that test. There's no doubt that loneliness is not just a story and that any way you find to ease it, any way you find to express it, any way you find to be comforted or guided through this mortal coil is worth putting thought into. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. <laughs>